Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. As a quick reminder, my episode of the Rundown Wrestling podcast series called WrestleMania Salvation is now available, where the host Sal and I discuss WrestleMania 7 for over two and a half hours. Sergeant Slaughter, as an Iraqi-sympathizing WWF champion, what could possibly go wrong? I'll put the link in the description for this episode, so feel free to click on over and take a listen. And also, Sal himself will actually be joining an episode of this fine podcast in the near future, so I look forward to having him on the show as well. And speaking of guest co-hosts, it is time for the Survivor Series slash Raw episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, and as such, I had to enlist a very special guest. Joining the podcast for the second time, the host of the Raw is Nitro podcast, coming all the way from Down Under, it is none other than Lee Carlos Cunningham. So Lee, would you care to remind the Raw Attitude podcast fans about Raw is Nitro and why they should be listening to it? Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Um, sure. Basically, we just look at Raw and Nitro episodes head-to-head. Um, we try not to get too deep into the, the, um, the backstory or the, back, the backstage going on and just compare them on a nightly basis and see which show had the better product. So we ignore the ratings, the buy rates, and the crowd and just decide for ourselves who put out the better product on the night, as well as doing the Raw and Nitros um, through the Monday Night War. We've also got a few little subcategories where we compare old-school shows, pay-per-views, or the Raw and Impact episodes that went head-to-head as well. So just a whole mishmash of basically taking two shows and deciding which one was the better product. When Raw goes head-to-head against Impact, would you think typically Raw gets the better of that exchange, or has Impact actually surprised you a little bit on some of those episodes? Well, the most recent one I've recorded is the debut of uh, Black Machismo, so (laughs) that's definitely a strong contender. (laughs) Absolutely. Jay Lethal was really good at those impressions, too. I think his, his flair impression was really on point, too. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the recreation of, of the Mega Powers handshake is enough to beat almost any wrestling show in history. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which I think they later, the WWE tried to do that, too, with, uh, I think, it was, was it Sandow and Curtis Axel, right, at some point? Yes, yes. Oh, good stuff. But, yeah, I, I remember seeing the clips of that. I wasn't active. I was never an active TNA watcher, really, but I do remember seeing the clips of that Jay Lethal handshake where I think it's probably the only occasion I've ever seen uh, somebody do a handshake where they kind of grab their own wrist, you know, as, as Randy Savage <laughs> did way back in the day. Like, well, I don't understand what that was, but you know what? It, God damn it, it worked. So it's Trying to control the power. <laughs> right, exactly. And actually, so also, when you and I were DMing each other on Twitter in advance of this episode, I remember you told me you've seen this pay-per-view, Survivor Series 98, about 50 times. Now, was that was that an exaggeration, or have you actually watched the show that often? Ah, uh, see, I've got this in my notes from your last episode. I, I did hear you say that might be a slight exaggeration. I kid you not, that is not an exaggeration. Yes, so, I love it. A, a little backstory on this one. I being about oh, probably 15 when this came out in Australia and not having any cable TV. This was the first wrestling pay-per-view of any kind, I believe, to appear on free-to-air TV in Australia. So wow. VHS tape went in, recorded, and it was the only sh- new show I'd had for a long time. So yeah, it got <laughs> watched to death. 
That's awesome. I'm glad that's not an exaggeration, and that's perfect. That makes me think you are the perfect person to have on for this show. So, fantastic. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sat here listening, watching the show, and I'm writing the commentary lines before they speak them. So, <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, this is the first time I've seen this show since... Uh, I was gonna. I was. I would say since I ordered the pay per view, but realistically, since my parents ordered the pay per view for me back in 1998. So it was. Um, it's. I guess that's kind of a contrast. There you have on your end somebody who's seen it a bunch, and me who's only. Who, this is basically my first time seeing it in 19 years. So, quite the. Uh, quite the contrast. That's. That'll be an interesting. Uh, maybe a little interesting dynamic as we go through it. And uh, one other note on Twitter, as I was saying, we were corresponding there. I noticed you recently tweeted out some pictures of yourself posing with several wrestlers who actually make appearances on this very show, including X-Pac and the Headbangers. I assume they, they were doing a tour of Australia. Is that right? Yeah, it was um, World Wrestling International or something it was called. It's basically a traveling indie show. They've got plans to come back next year. But um, I got a... For- the low price of 25 Australian dollars, I got a meet and greet package included in my ticket in a very, very small venue. So basically all the wrestlers set up gimmick tables and, you know, sold stuff. And I got to meet X-Park, the Headbangers, Austin Aries, Zack Sabre Jr. and a whole bunch of others. So it was really cool. Very cool. Would you say the verdict, uh, they're pretty good guys? Yeah, X-Park was very lovely. Obviously had the longest line and a genuinely humble, nice guy. So that might upset a few on twitter but definitely a very nice guy um austin aries funny story actually was a, a nice guy to everyone but cut a scathing promo on the promotion after his match so that that did make oh. me laugh a little bit oh god <laughs> this is this must be fresh off of him getting fired from wwe then right yeah so but he and x-pac teamed and x-pac got the mic afterwards and tried to give like as sort of the, the you know the elder statesman of the show a big thank you and talk about what a great privilege it was to team with austin aries and he handed him the mic Austin Aries says, yeah, this, you know, you were one of my idols. This was brilliant. But everybody knows the ring is our stage, and this one's a fucking disgrace. Throws the microphone and storms oh. out. <laughs> wow. Biting the hand that feeds you there, huh? They, they pay for him to come to Australia, presumably, and that's how he, how he responds. It, it was pretty intense. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Austin Aries, all right then. So Austin Aries, maybe, maybe not as much of a good guy, but X-Pac and, and the Headbangers were good guys, too. Yeah, the headbangers were very funny. Like the photos they took were great, but they were. Um, there was a bit of a difference between you could tell the guys that were there to simply make money and the guys that you know did enjoy interacting with the fans. Zack Saber Junior was lovely, actually. Um, okay. I went up to, to buy a photo with you know to have a photo with him, and he didn't want to charge me for it. So I, I think my brother and I bought his merchandise just to you know because we felt bad getting photos for free at that stage. <laughs> Very interesting, and I think actually on the note of the headbangers, weren't they just on SmackDown like this past year? I think yeah, they were. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. And I thought I was hallucinating. I was like, really, the fucking headbangers of all the teams to bring back, you bring back the headbangers. All right, sure, well, good stuff. So, but anyway, that's 2017 or now 2018, I suppose. Are you ready to dive back into 1998? I love this year, so let's do it. Fantastic. But with that being said, before we get into the Survivor Series, there was a live episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover before the pay-per-view began, so I will quickly run down the results for you. The Job Squad, consisting of Bob Holly and Scorpio, defeated Animal and Draws when Al Snow ran into the ring, hit Draws with head, and Scorpio covered him for the three count. Now, we haven't discussed the Job Squad yet on this podcast, but they actually formed the week prior on Sunday Night Heat because presumably they're... Uh, jobbers that's basically the extent of it although really what does that say for animal and draws when they can't beat friggin bob holly and scorpio i mean even a drunk hawk could probably do that single-handedly and uh more on him later (laughs) after that val venus defeated tiger ali singh thanks to interference from the godfather 
And then, speaking of new teams being formed, the Disciples of Apocalypse were supposed to have a match on Heat, but before that could happen, they were jumped from behind by another brand new tandem. So a fallen skull along with a Mr. Dotcom, Paul Ellery, set for action. Look out! Oh, that, that, that's Bradshaw and Farouk! Farouk! Farouk and Bradshaw, look out! Look out! Coming out! Give that big Texan plenty of room! What is... No! Bradshaw is hammered away with a chair and... Farouk on the other side has stairs. He was swinging that big metal folding chair like a lumberjack swings an axe, and he just chopped Skull down, and Farouk with the steps on eight ball. And now Ellering, and he's going to be double teamed in the ring. What is going on? Bradshaw and Farouk together? Farouk, and they're wearing matching tights. They've got some kind of symbols painted on their chest that match. Oh. And a double power bomb to Paul Ellering, and the Farouk and Bradshaw together? What the hell is going on? Yes, that's right. Bradshaw and Farouk have teamed up for some reason, perhaps their mutual love for stiffing the shit out of their opponents, and I suspect we may be seeing quite a bit more of this team in the future. So, Lee, are you a fan of this so-far unnamed tag team? Yeah, I actually am a a big fan of the Acolytes, so I enjoyed both of them. I much preferred them as a tag team than singles anyway, put it that way. Yeah, agreed. Definitely agree on that on that on that front. I, I tend to like them more a couple years down the line when they segue into a different uh, a different sort of gimmick. That's a little bit further off, but there you go. So yes, we'll be seeing them quite a bit more in the near future. After that, the New Age Outlaws then did an interview backstage where they were jumped by the Headbangers, your friends, the Headbangers, uh, D'Lo <laughs> Brown, D'Lo Brown, and Mark Henry as well. And as a reminder, those three teams will square off tonight in a match for the Outlaws WWF Tag Team Titles. Kevin Kelly then did an interview in the ring with Sable, who was interrupted by Mark Merrow, and with Merrow distracting his wife, Jacqueline snuck up from behind and nailed her in the back of the head with the women's title. Jackie is clearly trying to gain a quick advantage over her opponent tonight, because obviously a trained wrestler like Jackie needs all the help she can get against Sable, who has wrestled for about 15 total minutes in her entire life. And after that, Gangrel defeated Steve Blackman, thanks to interference from his brood stablemates Edge and Christian, However, perhaps the more noteworthy moment was what happened after the brood left and Blackman was left alone in the ring. Take a listen to this soundbite and get ready, because it's retroactively quite unfortunate. Well, you know what, once again, I have a a problem with uh, Gangrel and Edge not being in the Deadly Game Tournament, but I have a problem with Blackman not being in the Deadly Game It's the Blue Blazer! The Blue Blazer descending... From the ceiling, what in the world? And Blackman, he's still in La La Land. I don't even think, and now he sees him. Blackman's going to be in trouble if he doesn't, uh, wait a minute, the blazer, the blazer's hit some uh, turbulence. Well, he's, 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 looks like he's stuck in that harness. He can't get out. He's stuck. The idiot is stuck in the harness. The blazer was dropping in, but he got a little hung up. Didn't he think about that beforehand? I think the blazer didn't get clearance from the uh, air traffic controller, a, a human pinata. I think the same guy planned blazer's attack as planned General Custer's attack on the Indians. I think Blackman's going to knock him until the candy comes out. Look at this. Well, he's just a sitting duck. He can't. He's caught in his cape. In his I mean, what type harness? of harness? Now he's going back up. Well, what type of a fool comes down and he can't get out of the harness? I'm begging somebody to crank him up as quick as you can, please. And look at him. This is nonsense. Yeah, 
Yeah, so as you heard there, the blue blazer lowered himself down from the ceiling on a cable and landed in the aisle, but he got stuck in his harness and couldn't get himself out, so he was basically a sitting duck. That allowed Steve Blackman to start beating the crap out of him until the blazer was hoisted back up to the ceiling. Yes, folks, this was the first time we've seen the blue blazer come down from the rafters, but, spoiler alert, unfortunately it will not be the last time that that happens. And then, in the final segment of Sunday Night Heat, Vince McMahon, the Stooges, and the Big Boss Man came to ringside. Vince requested for The Rock, Shane McMahon, and Stone Cold Steve Austin to come to the ring, and so they did, but they were then interrupted by The Undertaker. Austin and Taker started fighting, which then touched off a massive brawl where almost every single competitor in the tournament, even Steven Regal, ran to the ring. The only one who was missing was Kane, but of course... The lights eventually went out, and Kane did indeed head to the ring. However, right as he stepped over the top rope to face off with his brother, Sunday Night Heat ended. So what do you think, Lee? Does that make you want to call your local cable company to order the pay-per-view? Uh, not so much. It makes me wince quite a bit, that Owen Hart stuff, uh, Blue Blade yeah. stuff, as you were. Yeah. And they really have no real payoff. I'm wondering with like with the Sunday Night Heat thing, because Kane literally steps over the rope to face off with The Undertaker, and then the show ends, and then as we'll see when the show begins, there's literally no follow-up on it whatsoever. So I don't know if they just end the show, and then it's like, okay, Kane and Undertaker head backstage. There you go. No idea. But so, with that being said, shall we get into the Survivor Series? Oh, absolutely. I'm chomping at the bit. Excellent. Well, let's do it. It is Sunday, November 15th, 1998, and we are live from the Keel Center in St. Louis, Missouri, in front of a whopping 21,179 fans. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include In Your House Bad Blood, which featured the debut of Kane, the 1,000th episode of Raw in 2012, Survivor Series 2014, where Sting made his WWE debut, recently Money in the Bank 2017, and also, on a note somewhat related to what we just discussed on Heat, there will be a particular episode of Raw in this same arena, which will air the night after Over the Edge 1999. We'll get to that one eventually, but let's just say that I am not looking forward to it. On that note, so we, mm, yeah. the, the Survivor Series 2014 has another notable uh, point on it, and I was sat second row ringside. Is that right? You were at, you were at that Survivor Series? I was. You made the trip to St. Louis. It was on my, uh, yeah, I, I basically spent the, a week or so driving from New York towards there as my final destination before flying back to the East Coast while on my honeymoon. So the Survivor Series ticket, I, I went on my own. My wife and daughter didn't really fancy it. Um, <laughs> ran, ran me about three or $400 from memory as well. So Wow. That must have been some pretty damn good seats then. Yeah, it was, um, well, if you, if you watch the show, you can actually see me. I'm... Um, where the babyface team are for the main event, I'm right behind that post there. So I've got my Manchester City scarf flying high through the whole show. Holy shit, that's awesome! So wait, are you are you like across like from the camera basically? Yeah, on the uh, facing the hard cam to the left of where you would be. So like right on the edge of the ring. So yeah, my big head is clearly visible through the whole show. Oh, that's awesome! Well, now I'm gonna have to go back and look at that. That's that's fucking awesome. On, on that note, did you enjoy Survivor Series 2014? I loved it. It was a you know really enjoyable show, and obviously the Sting debut. I had no idea. I was traveling through America, so I didn't watch any wrestling shows in the build-up. Just knew I was going to Survivor Series, so I had an awesome time. Um, that was in the height of Miz Dow as well, and he was brilliant with the crowd. And um, oh yeah, 
I managed to stand up right before Big Show turned heel and call it, so very loudly. So you can probably catch that on camera as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I remember actually, I really liked the main event. I think that main event went for something like 45 minutes before yep. Sting came out. And I remember thinking it was going to be the start of, um, of a big push for Ziggler because Sting hits Triple H. Is it Triple H? No, it's not Triple H. It's um, Rollins, I think, right? He hits Rollins with the... No, he the, hits Triple the, H. Oh, does he? Okay. Oh, no, yeah, you're right. Sorry. So he hits Triple H, who's trying to interfere on Rollins' behalf. Yeah. And then I think Ziggler ends up pinning Rollins because they were the last two left, right? Correct. Yeah, I remember thinking that was going to be some sort of push for Ziggler, but uh, oops. Yeah, I think we probably, all did. <laughs> pro- probably Sting's greatest moment in the WWE since I think he lost both of his pay-per-view appearances. Yeah, but... Unfortunate. Or maybe maybe that time, actually, I take it back. Either that or the time when they lifted up the uh, curtain to reveal the statue and it ended up being Sting underneath. That was pretty fucking awesome, I must say. Yeah. But unfortunately, a little a little too short-lived for the Stinger in the WWE. <laughs> but you got to see definitely a fine moment for him there. Oh, absolutely. So we begin Survivor Series 1998 with a montage of several of the wrestlers in tonight's tournament featuring close-ups on some of their faces. And can I just say, it struck me as hilarious that X-Pac and Al Snow are included in these close-ups. I mean, yeah, they're in the tournament, but uh, come on, come on. And after that montage ends, we segue into the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. But more importantly, we also hear the theme song for the 1998 Survivor Series, which is called Deadly Game. So, Lee, what do you think of this tune, which was created specifically for this event by the recently fired from WWE Jim Johnston? I love it. It's on the um, WWE Anthology three-disc set. And, yeah, I've, I've played it to death when that CD set came out. Oh, absolutely. It's actually funny because I had never, I don't have the anthology, but I had never really listened to the full song until recently. So I always thought it was just like a 20 second clip of the singer going, Deadly Game! over and over. But it turns out it's actually a full length, like three and a half minute song that talks about rolling the dice and holding the cards. It sounds incredibly 80s. And I honestly think it would be right at home on the soundtrack to Scarface. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play about a minute of it right here so you at home can judge for yourselves as to whether you think this is a worthy addition to the WWE catalog. Roll the dice, play your cards, break the rules, that's, that's who you are. Whoever said play it safe. Never played the game So many players Too many pawns Too many judges Say what's right or wrong Let them jump into the fire If they want to Spoiler for tonight, this is not actually a deadly game. You do not have to kill your opponent in order to advance in the tournament. And while we're at it, Lee, what are your thoughts on the giant skull that the wrestlers emerge from with flaming torches on both sides of the aisle? I love it so much that I actually have one that's been made for my wrestling figures. 
Nice. Wow. Do you have the the skull? Do you have the torches or just the skull? The skull and a couple of little torches made with a little fake fire on top of them as well. <laughs> oh, you you didn't bring in real fire for this one. No, sadly not. <laughs> probably probably for the best. So anyway, getting back to that obligatory scanning of the crowd, here are a few of the quality signs in the audience that I noticed. Will ref for food. Mr. McMahon, the people's asshole. Jeff Jarrett, the man you hate to love to hate. Sable, you forgot something last night. Hey, King, make fun of us. Hebner fears Doan. Beaver rules. Hey, DX, I'll suck yours if you suck mine. The rocks cook and crack. Even Mr. Sacco needs a little head. What does everybody want? Tits. And an amusing sign playing off the MLB home run chase from a few months prior. Maguire 70, Sable 69. Also, I have to point out the giant banners where several fans literally wrote down every word of Road Dog Jesse James's pre-match ladies and gentlemen intro. That was pretty goddamn impressive. So, Lee, were there any signs you noticed that I happened to miss? I got, I got a few of them, and then a couple more. There was one that said Ventura for president, and uh, Sable can pin me any day. Mmm. Subtle. I get <laughs> it. I think I get it. <laughs> Yeah, Jesse Ventura, as as covered on, I think it was the previous episode of this podcast, he had just won the governorship of Minnesota on, uh, I think it was November 3rd, and this is now November 15th, so still still very fresh in their minds. And over on Nitro, Hulk Hogan is now teasing a, a run for president at this very same time. So Jesse Ventura mania running wild in the WWE and also WCW. So we begin with a graphic showing all of the tournament matchups as Jim Ross helpfully informs us, quote, it will be only winners advancing, so that's good to know. It's not like most other tournaments where the wrestlers who lose go on to the next round. Although, sadly, that kind of sounds like something TNA would have attempted at some point. It's a reverse tournament. But anyway, for you listeners out there, I'm sure you've already listened to every episode of the Raw Attitude podcast leading up to this one. But in case you somehow forgot, here is a quick Cliff Notes recap as to why a WWF title tournament is necessary tonight. At September's breakdown pay-per-view, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin was pinned simultaneously in a triple threat match by both The Undertaker and Kane, causing confusion as to which brother of destruction would actually become the champion. The night after on Raw, Vince McMahon was going to present the title to one of them, but he became frustrated with Taker and Kane because neither one of them protected him when Austin drove a Zamboni into the arena and attacked him. As a result, Vince booked The Undertaker vs. Kane for October's Judgment Day pay-per-view, with Stone Cold acting as the guest referee. However, after Undertaker laid out Kane with a steel chair during that match, Austin then took out Taker with a stunner, and, with both brothers lying unconscious on the canvas, Stone Cold counted to three and declared himself the winner of the match, thereby refusing to award the WWF title to either man. The night after on Raw, Vince then declared that there would be a tournament at the Survivor Series to crown a new champion, and that brings us up to tonight. So do you feel all caught up now, Lee? Yes, uh, all that era, every bit of it, Breakdown, Judgment Day, all awesome memories for me as well. So I've enjoyed listening along to the... Well, the whole series of the show, but particularly the last few months since SummerSlam onwards is big highlights for me. Absolutely. I couldn't believe, like, going back through each show week by week that you basically had. You had the Zamboni, the hospital attack, the cement truck, 
and then uh, Austin taking Vince hostage all in consecutive weeks. That was four straight weeks all that crazy shit happened. So they were they were definitely going for it in an attempt to uh, take that momentum away from Nitro. And as of right now, I guess if you've if you followed a couple weeks ago, it worked quite well because let's say Nitro's days of winning in the ratings are are completely over at this point. So definitely definitely very effective stuff. So speaking of Vince McMahon, we open the show with the chairman, the Stooges, and the big boss man still at ringside after that final Sunday Night Heat segment. Vince grabs a mic and introduces Mankind, who comes to the ring wearing a full business suit and bow tie and holding his hardcore title. When the tournament bracket was announced, we saw that Mankind would have a mystery opponent tonight, and Vince appears ready to tell us who it is. And by the way, Lee, did you notice that some fans were chanting, HBK in anticipation that the mystery person would end up being Shawn Michaels. Yeah, I've got that in my notes here, that the crowd chant HBK as I almost sing along word for word with Vince's intro. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if if those fans are expecting HBK, I think they may end up being a tad disappointed when the person gets revealed. (laughs) So on that note, Vince then proceeds to take out a piece of paper and read an intro for the mystery opponent. So let's take a listen to that. Tonight, the mystery opponent to score off against mankind. This legend in the ranks of sports entertainment made his WWF debut in 1990. Over the course of the next six years, this charismatic superstar boasted a one-loss record that set new standards here in the WWF. Who do you think, JR? Unfortunately, seeking more opposition on his own caliber, this natural athlete jumped ship to the WCW. Whoa! Who is it? And after suffering a massive shoulder injury, this cornerstone of the World Wrestling Federation has been sidelined for the past two years. With his career on the line, he fought back with resilience, dreaming of this triumphant return to the ring here tonight. Therefore, without further ado, allow me to introduce to you, currently, the coach of the Pasadena Chargers, the man, the myth, Dwayne Gill. Yes, that's right. Mankind's mystery opponent is Dwayne Gill. For those of you who are not familiar with him, Dwayne Gill is essentially a lifetime jobber, as you could probably guess from JR's awesome line at the end of that clip where he said that Dwayne, quote, has spent more time on the canvas than Rembrandt. (laughs) A couple amusing touches here. So Dwayne gets pyro, which goes off unexpectedly and scares him. They spell his name wrong when they put it up on the screen. They spell it as D-W-A-Y-N-E instead of the correct D-U-A-N-E. And he gets his own Titantron video, which showcases a bunch of clips of him being beaten by other wrestlers. Pretty funny stuff. 
But the bigger picture here is that it appears that Vince is continuing to stack the deck in Mankind's favor by providing him with a pushover opponent in the first round of the tournament. And sure enough, that ends up bearing itself out as Foley hits Dwayne with a double-arm DDT and rolls him up for the pinfall in 30 seconds. This even prompts Jerry Lawler to amusingly ask, Was that a real match? Which struck me as pretty funny. So Mankind advances to the second round of the tournament with a huge assist from Mr. McMahon. So Lee, what did you think of our epic opening contest? Oh, brilliant. Just awesome storyline work. Um, another little favorite part of that f- for me as well was um, the disgust in JR's voice when he tells the viewers at home <laughs> that the Pasadena Chargers are an elementary school football team. It's not like he's right. come from the NFL. <laughs> right. Yeah, he gets introduced as the coach of the Pasadena Chargers. <laughs> It sounds important, but yeah, no, it's elementary school football team. Yeah, I I like it. It, It's um, clearly they're playing up the fact that Vince is really trying to give mankind that assist. Since obviously in the weeks leading up to this, it's been pretty clear that he's been positioning mankind as the potential favorite in the tournament. So I guess we'll end up seeing how that plays out a little bit later. So we then go backstage where a creepy goatee sporting Kevin Kelly catches up with Sable. She says that Jacqueline's attack earlier tonight on Heat only succeeded in pissing her off, and she guarantees that she will become the new WWF Women's Champion tonight. And certainly the fans will rally behind Sable, because it's been her dream to win the women's title for, uh, at least a couple weeks now, I'm guessing? I don't know. And speaking of being pissed off, we go back to the arena for our next match, Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Deborah McMichael, versus Al Snow, accompanied by Head, which still has Socko tied around its forehead for some reason. And by the way, I'm not sure what version of this pay-per-view they have on the WWE Network, but Sable was censored when she said Jackie pissed her off, and then during this match, Jarrett was bleeped when he said to the ref, I told him not to piss me off. I actually went back and checked, and it was not censored either time on the initial live broadcast back in 1998, so apparently the network thinks the P-word is just too hardcore for our delicate sensibilities. And they even blur out Austin's middle fingers later, which doesn't even happen on the network's episodes of Raw. So I'm not sure why they're using a heavily edited copy for this particular show only, but they should really change that as soon as possible. What do you think, Lee? Did you? I assume you had the same version that I did, where everything is pretty much well-censored on this show. Yeah, I, th- I can't remember which match it is, but it'll pop up on my notes. There's a pretty heavily overdubbed theme song at some point later on in the show as well. Um, yes. But yeah, but yeah there's, there's certainly some heavy edits. I, I assume this might have come from like when they had their Classics On Demand channel, maybe. Um, either that or uh, okay. Survivor Series box set. They're the only two th- things I can think of it being chopped up for. Yeah, it was really quite jarring because watching you know Raw week to week, they don't censor anything basically on the network. So I was like, what the hell is going on here? But uh, yes, I actually do make a note of the theme song that gets overdubbed. We'll get to that one a little bit later. But yeah, really, really weird stuff. So anyway, back to Jeff Jarrett versus Al Snow. This was pretty much a bleep break match. And the finish came when Deborah grabbed Head and got up on the ring apron to distract referee Tim White. She then gave Head, har har, to Jarrett. But meanwhile... Al picked up Jarrett's guitar. Al swung the guitar and missed, but Double J hit Al in the face with head. Tim White then turned back around, and Jarrett told him to get the guitar out of the ring, but when White was doing that, Al smacked Jarrett in the face with head, made the cover, and White turned back around to make the three count. Your winner is Al Snow, and he will now advance to the next round, where he will face his pal Mankind. So Lee, what did you think of this match? I enjoyed it. This is actually one of four matches on the show that didn't feature on the the free-to-air version over here, so we got a two-hour version of the pay-per-view. Oh. 
I did enjoy it for what it was. I think Al Snow, he, t- he does a, a cannonball flip to the floor and misses a top, lo- a top rope leg drop even. So he's definitely putting himself through some punishment. But watching this back, all I could think about was, um, like, it, it took me straight back to sort of my early, early teens that all the guys on the show so far had, like, the, the BCA Jacks action figures and that was like the first wave to come back into australia after well, since oh, Has- okay. since hasbro had been out so i remember going into like my local uh, kmart i think it was one day and just seeing like 20 new wwf action figures and flipping out and these guys are all like <laughs> in the outfits they're wearing on this show this is pretty much the whole roster came out over here oh wow i didn't even realize that well, actually, on the note of Al Snow's action figure, I'm pretty sure it's later in 1999 when his action figure gets uh, gets in a brief amount of controversy over here in the States because uh, they somebody, I think there was like a parent who went to Toys R Us or one of those stores and saw the Al Snow figure, which came with a little miniature version of Head, and they thought it was a, a severed woman's head with the action figure. So I'm pretty sure that happens a little later on in 1999 where basically Al Snow's Jack's figure gets the WWE in hot water for... A couple, you know, a couple seconds, basically. It's, a, it's just a little minor controversy, but yeah, that, good times. But that will become an angle for you later because I believe Bob Holly cuts a promo holding that action figure on Raw in 1999. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> and then right there, they should just be putting out as many of those action figures as possible to capitalize on that, just to be like, ah, oh, see, buy the action figure that everyone's trying to take off the shelves. <laughs> Unless, of course, it does get banned from the shelves. I don't know. I don't remember how it ends up playing out, but I definitely remember that Al Snow action figure controversy. Also, when when Al won this match, I couldn't help but think to myself, is this the closest he ever gets to winning the WWF title? I don't know if he ever gets like an, a formal title match, but he's in a tournament right now for the title, so maybe. I don't know. I would think so. And that's probably for the best. But now it's time for our next match in the tournament, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Big Boss Man. Kind of funny seeing Austin on a pay-per-view card this early during the Attitude Era, but certainly we're all expecting him to have a pretty deep run in the tournament tonight. So not only is this The Big Boss Man's first match in the WWF in five and a half years, but this is also the debut of The Boss Man's new repetitive theme song. Are you a fan of that, Lee? Uh, I remember when he... um... I I want to say 99 after a brief hiatus he comes back and this song plays with like a titan drum that goes about as long as the loop of of sound does it's like (laughs) three seconds of audio and three seconds of video played all over and over until he hits the ring yep yep, it's pretty much and him twirling the nightstick and then that's it there you go (laughs) because as of this right now I mean obviously they could go back and you know put a bunch of footage from when he was the initial big boss man with the powder blue shirt but I think they're trying to distance themselves as much from that as possible so instead on this show you basically just have you know boss man in his current black SWAT incarnation kind of just twirling a nightstick and looking into the camera so yeah, not not a lot of footage to use. At that point, I, I figure you should probably just like have a graphic on the screen that just says, you know, the big boss man or something like that. But but also on that note, how crazy is it that the boss man was not being used at all in WCW? They didn't think twice about letting his contract run out. And then the WWF picks him up and immediately puts him into a main event angle between Stone Cold and Vince McMahon. Talk about right place, right time, huh? And it fits in seamlessly. Actually, I'm a big a big big boss man fan <laughs> yeah i like him in this role actually i don't think it lasts i think it might last a couple months longer but yeah i really like the fact that um 
you know, he comes back and now he's the quote unquote, you know, chief of security, which makes a lot of sense because Vince had just been attacked by Austin several times. He had had his ankle broken by The Undertaker and Kane. So it makes sense that he would need some sort of law enforcer type to watch his back. And wouldn't you know it, Big Boss Man happens to be available, right place, right time. There you go. So this match between Boss Man and Austin went for a little more than three minutes, with Stone Cold controlling the majority of it. Eventually, Austin attempted to Irish whip Boss Man from one corner to another, but instead the Boss Man rolled out of the ring and grabbed his nightstick. When Stone Cold followed him outside, Boss Man hit him in the stomach with it right in front of the referee, resulting in a disqualification. However, it appears this may have been part of the larger strategy all along, because Bossman then continues to beat the crap out of Stone Cold with his nightstick, presumably to weaken him for his next opponent. Austin may have won the battle, but it seemingly became much more difficult for him to win the larger war. And as soon as Bossman finishes his beatdown, we go backstage with Michael Cole, who is with Vince McMahon. Vince says that Austin may have advanced, but there's more where that came from. Austin's in for it. So, Lee, what did you think of Austin versus Boss Man? Um, yeah, it's good. I mean, I, two points that really stood out to me is I, I love it when we go back to Vince and he just so arrogantly says, you call that advancement? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Brilliant. And I, I like it, it just struck me as odd, like, and it never does any other time. But, like, as wrestling fans, we just have this weird sort of, we just accept wrestling logic that Austin can take, you know, a dozen nightstick shots and then still come out fairly, you know, fine for the rest of the night with no bruises i just you know it just was one of them things that like we've been accepting this for most of us most of our lives right yeah very true i i do obviously you know as a match not much of a match but as as angle advancement uh, if you want to use if you want to use the vince word there advancement very good stuff because boss man you know basically gives himself up for the greater good so he can beat the shit out of stone cold with a nightstick in advance and basically in the hopes that uh, it'll weaken austin so he won't be you know, fresh for the remainder of the night. Interesting strategy. I guess we'll see uh, if that ends up paying off. So up next, we had another first-round match in the tournament, Steven Regal versus WWF European champion X-Pac. And by the way, the word European was amusingly misspelled on Pac's on-screen graphic. It spelled it P-O instead of O-P. So combine that with uh, misspelling Dwayne Gill's name, and it's not a good night so far for spell check. Also, I'm impressed that Pac is not sporting an eye patch after Kane threw a fucking fireball in his face on the previous episode of Raw, so kudos to him for toughing it out, I suppose. So, Lee, did you enjoy seeing Regal enter to that amazing theme music while wearing a yellow construction helmet? Oh, I absolutely loved it. Um, I have to, yeah, I do have to wonder, like, I, um, a yellow construction helmet with a lumberjack outfit, it's not two things I would normally see put together, so, you know, I wonder <laughs> if he's just a very diverse man's man. Clearly, anything manly, anything possibly manly, he just mashes it all together. <laughs> Lum- lumberjack, construction worker, uh, I don't know, race car driver, maybe throw something like that in there. I have no idea. Any manly occupation, basically. And Jerry Lawler seemed to really mark out to his theme song as much as I did, <laughs> so that was good fun to listen to. I made a note of that, too, that you know, you know it's got to be a good theme song when Jerry Lawler is singing along to it, although... <laughs> Unfortunately for the king, let's just say I wouldn't get too attached because you're not going to be hearing it that much more often, unfortunately. Amusingly, though, at the start, we do get a nice Regal Sucks chant during the match, which he responds to by flexing his muscle. Again, very manly. So you got to love Regal, even when given a crappy gimmick. He can somehow make it work until he gets fired for being a drunk. 
So these guys actually got a pretty good amount of time, a little more than eight minutes, and they produced a pretty solid match. The finish came when X-Pac went to the top turnbuckle, but Regal knocked him off and crotched him on the top rope, causing Pac to fall to the floor. Regal then followed him out and went for a suplex, but Pac blocked it and hit him with a suplex of his own. He then foolishly started punching Regal in the face, which turned out to be a mistake because the referee ended up counting both of them out, which would mean that neither man advances, and Stone Cold Steve Austin would then have a bye in the next round, which would automatically put him in the final four. However, we then cut backstage where Vince McMahon orders Commissioner Slaughter to head to ringside, and so he does. Slaughter says something to Howard Finkel, and the Fink then announces that there will now be a sudden death five-minute overtime period. Unfortunately, by the time he makes that announcement, X-Pac is already at the top of the ramp holding his neck, seemingly unable to continue. Pac is then escorted backstage, so it would then appear that Regal's best course of action would be to simply stay in the ring and let the ref count Pac out. But instead, Regal also runs backstage, meaning that both men completely ignored the order to restart the match and just headed to the locker room. I think it's pretty clear that something got fucked up here, and, spoiler alert, the next night on Raw, Jim Ross lets us know what it was. At one point during the match, Regal hit X-Pac with a top rope double underhook suplex, and Pac landed on his neck. They were worried he had suffered a legitimate injury, so apparently he wasn't just selling his neck at the end there, it was the real deal. So perhaps Regal ran to the back to get himself counted out because he knew he wasn't supposed to advance? Who knows? But anyway, anyway, Lee, what did you think of this match and these subsequent confusing shenanigans? Yeah, I've, as someone who gushes over this show, I had to say this was probably the worst piece of storytelling on the show. Um, mm. d- during the match, I took the note that it looks like that top rope underhook suplex really hurt X-Pac's neck because he was not the same in the match afterwards. Um, I didn't actually hear that note the next night on Raw, so that just confirmed my musings here, wondering about that. But um, essentially, yeah... I, granted the circumstances around it, but it made X-Pac look like a bit of a wuss and Regal look like a bit of a dope. And, you know, it made them look like they both just gave up on the the world title and one, you know, potentially two guys that don't get world title shots just say, ah, no, not tonight. Yeah, I I really wonder what the initial plan was. I'm guessing maybe the plan was for X-Pac to win, but then when he fucked up his neck, he was probably like, I can't continue, so maybe we should just do this double count-out thing. And then... I don't know if Vince backstage calls an audible and says they need to restart, and Pac is just like, no, I, I can't, I'm fucked, so I can't restart the match. And then Regal maybe, maybe I guess knowing that he wasn't supposed to advance, he just ran backstage, I, I don't know. Although I would have been perfectly fine with Regal staying in the ring and X-Pac being counted out, and then us getting Austin versus Regal. I think that would have been pretty nice myself. That would have been pretty good. Definitely. Because I don't think, I don't know if we ever actually end up getting that match. Maybe we do at some point, but that would have been nice to see, but... Who knows? Um, yeah, the next night on Raw, basically Jim Ross, he doesn't say that it happens during the double underhook suplex, but I made the note because, as you said, it was pretty obvious that's when it happens because Pac does land on his neck. Jim Ross basically makes the point that X-Pac lands on his neck and they were concerned he was hurt, but that's the long and the short of that one there. Very, very botched, but the end result is basically the opposite of what Vince McMahon wants because now Stone Cold automatically advances to the final four. Rather unfortunate for Vince Our next tournament match was WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock versus Goldust. I'll just point out that Shamrock is no stranger to winning tournaments so far this year, as he won the King of the Ring tournament in June, and then he won a one-night-only tournament on Raw for the Intercontinental title one month ago, so perhaps he should be considered a favorite here tonight. And this was kind of an okay match between these two that went about six minutes, 
and the finish came when Goldust propped Shamrock up in the corner and went for Shattered Dreams. Now, obviously, if he had hit that move, it would have been an automatic disqualification, and he would have just eliminated himself from winning the most important belt in the fucking industry, but referee Jimmy Cordera stepped in front of Shamrock before Goldust could kick him in the balls. Shamrock then went to the second rope and hit Goldust with a sloppy-looking Hurricane Rana, followed by a belly-to-belly suplex, and then he put him into the ankle lock. Goldust quickly tapped out, giving the victory to Shamrock and advancing him in the tournament. So, Lee, what did you think of this one? It was good. It was um, it was started off a bit like a video game with just move after move after move, and the cra- the crowd didn't really get into it. But by the time it ended, I thought it was a, a really solid little match. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The basically gold dust, quote unquote gold dust. I mean, Dustin Reynolds was on the show for many months prior, but gold dust had just come back. I think less than a month before this show, or maybe around a month before this show, and his reaction has been pretty tepid since he came back. I think. The, maybe the general feeling among the fans at this point is just like, yeah, you know, it's it's Goldust. You know, we were fine with him leaving before, so we're not too psyched to have him back. You know, even though, I, although I will say the build up with the with the Val Venus Goldust feud, I think is really good with him kind of manipulating him and uh, you know Terry being on on Val Venus's side to say the least. I thought that build up was good, but that's it's pretty much cooled off for Goldust since he came back. So, and as you see right here, he's only about a month back and he's jobbing in the the first round of the tournament. So. Clearly, the plans aren't uh, aren't too big for him back here in uh, November of '98, but he's still going in uh, January of 2018. So I guess you know who knows who knows how these things work out. Yeah. So we then go backstage where Michael Cole provides us with an update on Stone Cold Steve Austin. He informs us that Austin is in need of medical attention after being beaten with the Big Boss Man's nightstick, but Stone Cold has refused to be tended to by doctors. Will he make it to his next match? Stay tuned. We then head back to the arena for our final first-round match in the tournament, The Rock versus Triple H. Now remember, we haven't seen Triple H compete in over a month since he had to vacate the Intercontinental title due to his real-life knee injury, and sure enough, when the DX music plays, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe crotch-chop their way to the ring instead. Briscoe grabs a mic and says that Mr. McMahon has informed him that he can fine Triple H heavily for not appearing tonight, even though he was ordered to be there. Patterson then takes the mic and informs Rock of how the plans have changed, so let's pick it up from there. First of all, I'm happy to tell you there will be no forfeit. And second of all, Vince McMahon has found a replacement at the last minute. At the last minute to replace Triple H. And there he is, the Big Boss Man! The Big Boss Man's already been eliminated, for goodness sakes. Is McMahon changing the rules as we go along here? This is McMahon's self-appointed bodyguard, the head of McMahon's security force, the Big Boss Man. Well, with Mr. McMahon, no good deeds go unpunished. Well, this is not fair with a rock. He's got the roadblock in front of him, the big boss man. And the rock, wait a minute, inside cradle can. No way! Yes! yes. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? What? Oh, you! Can you smell? Can you smell? Who the rock just cooked up for the big boss man? How do you like that, Mr. McMahon? Wait a minute! That's right, the big boss man entered the ring. Rock put him into an inside cradle 
and he scored the victory in 3.39 seconds, according to the stopwatch on my iPhone, thereby advancing in the tournament to face Ken Shamrock. I think some people refer to this as the shortest match in WWE history, and I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I'm sure it has to be at least in the top three, since it'd be tough to do better than 3.39 seconds from bell to bell. So, Lee, what did you think of this epic encounter? <laughs> it's actually an amazing piece of storytelling when you add it up to, yes. to what happens at the end of the evening. It's just brilliant. I've got... Um, by the way, this rock theme is my all-time favorite rock theme. I just love this version of his theme. Certainly better than the one he had for that one night that you played a few episodes back anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah, go back and listen to that one, folks, if you haven't. Uh, it's probably, it's like a late October Raw, I think. It's it's uh, it's something. There's a reason it only lasted for, for, for one week, certainly. My only regret with this was when the Stooges came out and their DX entrance was amazing. We got Gerald Briscoe's Mac Man. We didn't get Pat Patterson's Hunter Hearst Hemsley, which I was yeah. waiting for. <laughs> Oh my god, yes. I don't know why he's the only person who can't pronounce the word Helmsley for some reason, but yeah, that that was always a go-to of Pat Patterson was was Hemsley. Kind of like Regal in the later years when he would always pronounce pronounce Umaga as Umanga for yes, some reason. Yes. <laughs> some of those great pronunciations. And yeah, like you said Briscoe, always always with the Mr. Mac man. I don't think anybody else ever called Vince Mr. Mac man in in that in that same uh wonderful Oklahoma accent that he has there but yeah so the rock advances beats the boss man in 3.39 seconds at the time I, I thought this made boss man look like a complete jobber since it was basically his first night back wrestling for the company but uh I guess we'll see what happens later maybe maybe our thoughts will change by the end of the night so for those of you keeping score at home here are the matchups for the next round stone cold will face no one, because he already has a bye in the semifinals thanks to that X-Pac Regal double countout. Mankind will face Al Snow. The Rock will go up against Ken Shamrock. And The Undertaker will face Kane. Yes, that's right. The Undertaker and Kane were each given automatic buys in the first round, so they will begin the tournament by facing each other in the quarterfinals. And speaking of that match, it's actually up next. The Undertaker accompanied by Paul Bearer versus Kane. And my first question here would be, why did Vince McMahon reward both of these men with buys when they were responsible for breaking his ankle a month and a half ago and putting him into a wheelchair? Clearly, he is quite forgiving. <laughs> so, ironically, for a match that features a guy who has been attempting to set people on fire recently, it certainly did not have a lot of heat. The crowd was pretty quiet throughout, and I feel like it doesn't help that Kane is being booked as a tweener at this point. This past Monday on Raw, he's shot a fireball into X-Pac's face, but then he tried to burn all three members of the brood, so he's attacking both heels and faces. I assume that may have been a factor in the crowd's apathy, and maybe also the fact these guys have faced each other roughly 6,000 times this year. Of course, it also didn't really help that this was a pretty slow plotting match, in my opinion. It went about seven minutes, and the finish came when Kane hit The Undertaker with a choke slam. But before he could finish him off, Paul Bearer jumped up on the ring apron to distract Kane. That allowed The Undertaker to recover, hit Kane with a tombstone, and then pin him by hooking his legs instead of his usual cross-arm pose, and Bearer even held down Kane's foot for good measure. 
your winner is The Undertaker, and he will now advance to the final four of the tournament, where he will meet the winner of The Rock versus Ken Shamrock. So, Lee, what did you think of The Undertaker versus Kane, round 522? <laughs> yeah, the, the match itself is not the best, but this is a, another guy on the show where I think it's the pinnacle of their theme songs with The Undertaker's electric guitar version. I just oh yes, absolutely adore it. I could listen to this song all day. Um, <laughs> yep. I, uh, is that also including at the end where it gets into the... Yeah, epic, and it just needs yeah. um, Classy Freddy Blassie to be announcing something at the end of it, and it would just be perfection. Yeah, <laughs> I think absolutely. Yeah, the match it, it didn't really do a lot. Um, I, I do enjoy these guys, but they really need something a bit more epic to make it, you know, to, to make up for some of their shortcomings against each other. And I, I hear what you're saying about Kane because he does appear in storylines to be quite directionless, as opposed to the Raw we watch after this, where he seems to be literally directionless. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, more on that later. That that takes a rather strange turn on the Raw after. Also, was it as jarring for you as it was for me to see Undertaker hook the leg after a tombstone? I'm so used to the cross-arm pose that I was like, what is he doing? That's so bizarre. I think it, I, I, I want to give him credit and say it makes for a good piece of um, storytelling and throwback. Because if you think to WrestleMania 14, when it took three tombstones, and I've got to assume he knows he's going into a tournament here, and he's not really got the energy to tombstone a big lump like Kane three times in his first match of the night. Yeah, true. It, well, also, it does open up the possibility for Paul Bearer to, to hold down Kane's leg as well. So I guess there was some logic there. But uh, yeah, The Undertaker advancing. And uh, that's, yeah, again, not not a match I would say if you're an Undertaker-Kane aficionado that I would say you have to go out of your way to see. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. So our next match was another quarterfinal match in the tournament, pitting real-life best friends against each other, Mankind versus Al Snow. In case you're wondering at home, yes, Mankind is still wearing the tuxedo for this match, which I imagine can't be too comfortable to wrestle in. Early on in the match, Mankind rolled to the outside and grabbed a chair, but Al was able to take it away from him, and Al then hit Foley twice in the stomach with the chair, right in front of referee Jimmy Corderas, but for some reason, Corderas did not immediately disqualify him. Interestingly, when this match is going on, we go backstage where Vince McMahon is with the Stooges, and Gerald Briscoe says it was hilarious when Vince stole Mr. Sacco and put it around head. Vince then agrees and says that Foley is going to go ballistic when he realizes that the sock is on head. So, okay, a, a couple questions here. Number one, how did Vince steal Sacco from Foley? Number two, why would he put the sock around head? Number three, Al Snow had Sako around Head's head last week on Raw, so why didn't Foley see it then? And number four, isn't it a bit cruel for Vince to do something like that to the man who is clearly his hand-picked champion? Very strange. Very strange. And sure enough, shortly after that backstage moment, Al grabs Head and swings it at Foley, but he ducks, hits Al with a back suplex, and then Mick does indeed see that Sako is tied around Head. He grabs the sock and starts beating on head. I can't believe I'm actually recapping this. <laughs> and then and then eventually he does indeed manage to put the Sako-aided mandible claw on Al, resulting in the submission victory. Mankind will now advance to the final four, where he will take on Stone Cold Steve Austin. So, Lee, what did you think of this matchup between two nutjobs? The, the action itself was decent. Um, if you ignore all the sort of logic flaws throughout it, the referee not disqualifying either of them for, for weapon shots. Um, 
Mick yeah. Foley not seeing the obvious that Socko was around the head, Al Snow not realizing that Socko was around the head and it might infuriate his upcoming opponent. Um, outside of that, the action was really good, but yeah, it, it was a little bit, it, it wasn't the, the strongest point of the show when you add in all those other factors. Yeah, I, I would agree. Definitely not. The good thing is, though, Mankind's going to have, in my opinion, two pretty solid matches uh, from the rest of the show. So he'll he'll make up for it, basically. But yeah, Al Snow, I guess there you go. He makes it to the final eight of a tournament, and that is the closest he will ever get to the WWF title. <laughs> so very sad. Very sad for Al Snow and for Head as well. Up next, we get our last quarterfinal matchup, WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock versus The Rock. And just a few minutes into this match, who should wander on down to the ring but none other than the big boss man? He's certainly getting a lot of screen time tonight, huh? So Rock ended up taking control of the match and hitting Shamrock with the people's elbow, but only managing to get a two-count, surprisingly. From there, Shamrock hit Rock with a belly-to-belly suplex, and then the boss man jumped up on the ring apron to distract referee Mike Kyoto. Bossman got in Kyoto's face and then proceeded to toss the nightstick to Shamrock behind the ref's back, but The Rock snatched it out of the air before Shamrock could catch it, and he smacked Shamrock in the face with it himself. Rock then tossed the nightstick out of the ring, Kyoto turned back around, and Rock scored the one, the two, and the three. He will now advance to the final four, where he will face The Undertaker. Meanwhile, at this point, you've got to think that Vince McMahon must be pretty unhappy with the boss man, since he lost to The Rock in three seconds earlier, and now he just accidentally ended up giving The Rock the victory by tossing his nightstick to him. So two huge mistakes there for Vince's head of security. So, Lee, what did you think of The Rock versus Ken Shamrock? I really enjoyed this for a number of reasons. First of all, that nightstick throw is one of the best executed pieces of storytelling in wrestling I've ever seen, bar none. I've, yes. I, I can't overstate how amazing that was because watching this at the time, I didn't think for a second that was done on purpose. It was just executed to perfection. Ken Shamrock is massively underrated in my eyes. I thought he was someone they really underutilized. And this feud is actually genuinely really good. And I think this is a feud that really put the rock on the map as a singles competitor. So, you know... Shamrock certainly had a big part to play in one of the biggest stars in the history of wrestling getting to where he was and watching it as well like I can't help but think how awesome it is to watch wrestling where the crowd cheer boo ooh and ah on on the the pinfalls of the near you know the near near falls sorry especially the kick out on the people's elbow they're not trying to get themselves over they're genuinely invested in the match and hot, hot at the same time you just don't see this anymore yeah and by the same token they're reacting to the things that the WWE basically wants them to react to, as opposed to now where you see a lot of the cases, you know, that you cheer the, you cheer the heels and you boo the faces at this point. But back then in, in 1998, this was, everyone was rooting for the rock. Everyone was opposed to Shamrock and uh, throughout the night too. I mean, obviously anybody who goes up against Austin, it's always Austin getting massive cheers. Basically the way it's been booked, the way the most of the feuds have been positioned, you know, the fans, are booked to think one way about a guy and they're completely buying into it because the storytelling is so good that they're actually going along with what they're supposed to go along with. So so really good stuff in my opinion. And again, as you said, that nightstick throw was The Rock just snatching it out of the air perfectly. It, it looked, I, I don't know you know, if they rehearsed that or if they tried to you know get that down pat in advance, but it looked absolutely beautiful where Boss Man tosses it and The Rock just basically just takes one hand, sticks his hand out, grabs it in one fluid motion, hits Shamrock in the face with it. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, once again, once again, The Rock somehow defying the odds, 
beats the boss man in three seconds, and then he snatches away the boss man's nightstick. So seems like a good night for The Rock, even though Vince McMahon clearly does not want him to be the champion tonight. So we then go backstage where Michael Cole is with Paul Bearer, and he asks for his thoughts on the fact that The Undertaker must now face The Rock. Bearer actually gets in a pretty good line where he says that the only rock The Undertaker likes is a slab of granite that he carves his victims' names into, but to which I must say, I think we also know that he likes rap rock, given his gimmick about a year and a half from now, but that's that's a whole other story. <laughs> and then we head back to the arena for a brief break in the tournament, because it is now time for a WWF Women's Championship match, champion Jacqueline, accompanied by Mark Merrow, versus the challenger, Sable. The first thing I'll note is that if you're watching this match on the WWE Network, as you said earlier, Lee, they completely dub over Mark Marrow's theme song with one that sounds similar, and I have no idea why. And they also edit out Howard Finkel announcing Jackie as the women's champion, and again, your guess is as good as mine. Another important thing to note here is that the referee for this match is Shane McMahon. And really, if Vince wanted to punish his son by making him a referee, it certainly seems to have backfired here because I would assume this is a gig that any ref would want at the time. I mean, the Sable match, come on. (laughs) And at the start of the match, Sable pretty much dominated, hitting Jackie with a hip toss, a boot to the face, and then a TKO. However, when she went for the cover, Mark Merrow pulled her out of the ring before Shane could count to three. To which Sable responded by kicking him in the balls and hitting him with a sable bomb right on the floor. Ouch. We also got some more WWE Network censorship as Sable yelled that she was sick of Mero's shit, but the network bleeped out the S-word. But, just in case you're curious, here's how it sounded on the original broadcast. And the lowly referee, if I can use one of Mr. McMahon's expressions... Back in the ring, Jackie took control by choking Sable on the second rope and then setting her up for a tornado DDT, but Sable blocked it. From there, she hit Jackie with a Sable bomb, and Shane McMahon counted the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the new WWF Women's Champion for the first time in her career, Sable. So, Lee, what did you think of Sable fulfilling her minutes-long dream (laughs) of becoming the Women's Champion? I can't watch a Sable match the same way anymore. I don't know where I read or heard recently, but that Sable in this era refused to learn how to take bumps. And now watching this match, it's quite evident she doesn't take a single bump in the entire match. So Jackie doesn't actually put a single wrestling move on her. It's just, you know, she might get punched or have a hair pulled, but she doesn't take a single move. The other really interesting thing here was, was hard to watch was she power bombs Mark Miro on the floor and it did not look good like that could have no. could have gone badly badly wrong it was just a complete squash and yeah I didn't appreciate it much to be honest and this was one of the 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 four matches I alluded to earlier that wasn't on the the version I had at home so I've got no fun memories to go with it and make up for what I saw yeah, Jay, I can't imagine why they would uh, exclude that match on on your version there I can't imagine why <laughs> Yeah, Sable, I I wonder, you know, from Jackie's perspective, Jackie, this longtime veteran of the wrestling game, I wonder how she felt having to basically cleanly put over Sable, who's not just, you know, fighting off Jackie, but is also fighting off Mero. Basically, Sable is easily fending off two people in this match and kind of not, not squashing Jackie, but really having, you know, not a very tough time with, you know, the with Jackie Moore, who's obviously been in the business for, for many, many years. So I can only imagine Jackie probably wasn't too happy to do the job there, but who knows? 
But the Sable era has begun, clearly. So, good times. Good times. And we then go to our next match, a semifinals match in the WWF title tournament, Mankind versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Notably, when Austin makes his way to the ring, he's walking rather gingerly, and his left arm is dangling at his side thanks to that assault by the big boss man earlier tonight, which could end up being a factor as the match plays out. Also, Mankind is still wearing his full tuxedo at the start of the match, but Austin quickly rips off his suit coat and designer shoes, and even smacks Foley in the head with one of the shoes right in front of the referee, but somehow, again, no disqualification. And shortly after the match begins... The Stooges wheel Vince McMahon down to ringside. Apparently, they want to get a closer look at this match, which involves the chairman's hand-picked corporate champion. Unfortunately, shortly after they arrive, Stone Cold kicks Mankind in the gut and goes for a stunner, which Foley blocks, and he then proceeds to roll out of the ring and run all the way up the aisle, seemingly willing to give up on his shot at the WWF title just to escape from Austin. Patterson, Briscoe, and Slaughter then try to give him a pep talk, but they get interrupted when Austin attacks the Stooges in the aisle. From there, we get an Attitude Era Stone Cold staple as he goes for a pile driver outside of the ring, but it gets reversed into a backdrop instead. Classic Attitude Era Austin there. Eventually, they made their way back into the ring, where Mankind grabbed a chair and charged at Austin, but he booted the chair back into Foley's face. From there, with Foley positioned throat first on the middle rope, Stone Cold bounced off the ropes in an attempt to choke him, but Foley moved out of the way, causing Austin to fall to the canvas. From there, Mankind picked him up and hit him with a double-arm DDT right onto the steel chair, directly in front of referee Mike Chioda, to which I once again must ask, how the fuck is that not a disqualification? But anyway, Chioda instead makes the count, but Austin just barely kicks out before three. Foley then goes for a pile driver onto the chair, but Austin reverses it with a backdrop, hits Mankind with a stunner, and goes for the pin. Kyoto went to make the count, but a miraculously healed Vince McMahon leaps out of his wheelchair and pulls Kyoto out of the ring before he can make the count. Slaughter then holds up Kyoto, and Vince absolutely levels him with a punch to the face, meaning that we now have no referee for the match. Back in the ring, Austin and Mankind continue to fight, and amusingly, at this point, Mankind's tuxedo pants have literally fallen to his ankles, but thankfully he's wearing his usual brown tights underneath. Still, he manages to put Austin into the mandible claw, but Stone Cold escapes and hits him with another stunner. But then, in what appears to be a fortunate moment for Stone Cold, a new referee shows up on the scene. Shot. What? Oh. 
So as you heard there, Shane McMahon came to the ring wearing his referee gear and counted the one, the two, but not the three, instead flipping off Austin before he could make the count. Austin then proceeds to stalk Shane around the ring for a little while, which looks incredibly awkward, and apparently the reason for that awkwardness is because the big boss man was supposed to do a run-in here, and he completely pulled a no-show. Whoopsie. I'm not sure how he could forget, since he's basically involved in every friggin' match tonight, but oh well. So anyway, Austin and Foley then resumed fighting, and from there, Commissioner Slaughter ran into the ring, held Austin up, and Briscoe hit Stone Cold with a really weak-looking chair shot, as it was very obvious that Austin completely blocked it with his right forearm. However, a confused Foley then did indeed pin Austin, and Shane McMahon counted the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the first man to advance to the finals of the tournament tonight is Mankind. As soon as the count is registered, Shane then scampers off backstage with the Stooges and Vince, who is now running just fine on his own and no longer appears to need his wheelchair. Also at this point, we see that the boss man has now met up with the group, so better late than never, I guess. The camera then follows all of them backstage as they hop into a limousine and drive out of the arena, except for boss man, who stays behind and wanders off somewhere. Quite the awkward couple minutes for him, I would imagine. So Stone Cold runs out to the parking lot, and, in order to catch up to the McMahons, he throws some guy out of a truck and drives off after them. So to recap, Shane McMahon, the man responsible for rehiring Stone Cold to a five-year contract, has now screwed him out of the WWF title tournament and aligned himself with his father. Now, Lee, I'm going to go through this entire conspiracy once we wrap up at the end of the Survivor Series, and we can break down whether or not the whole thing makes sense then, but for now... What did you think of Austin versus Mankind and Shane turning heel? Yeah, I've got some some notes on that conspiracy on the Raw episode actually as well. So <laughs> uh, definitely looking forward to chatting about that. This was this was a good match. I've got a like I, I did enjoy it. Foley losing his loafers within the first minute was pretty hilarious as well. Yeah. He's essentially them wrestling in his socks. Yep. The crowd eat up everything Stone Cold does. Um, they are just behind him 100%. I've got to question his sanity taking that backdrop on the concrete floor, though, Like especially in his condition. Mm. It's just completely unnecessary. But um, the Shane McMahon heel turn in isolation was executed quite well. And the JR commentary is another one of the moments from this show that's burned in my memory where Shane rolls in and, he, and JR counts along with him. One, two, three. And Shane doesn't clap the threes. He's going, three. Three, JR's just like desperation in his voice for Shane to slap the mat one more time. It's just one of them yeah. classic moments from this show. Yeah. Where, where's three? Where's three? Yeah, it, I will say the setup, whether or not it makes sense, we can, we can discuss that a little bit later. But the setup of Shane rolling into the ring and counting that three is, I think, actually really masterful. Because we've already seen Shane do this on the previous episode of Raw. He did it for The Rock, where he kind of, you know... Uh, he basically went against Vince. He rolled into the ring and counted the three count for The Rock, which got him into the tournament tonight. And then tonight, you think, once again, babyface Shane as the referee slides into the ring. You think he's going to make the three count to help out Stone Cold, the man who he rehired. And then he stops and flips him off right in his friggin' face. So, again, really masterful stuff. And I will say, I think it's actually a, a very, it's it's a good testament to Shane that he is basically, you know, kind of, doesn't show a lot of personality as a babyface going into this. He's, you know, 
Uh, he's the good guy who rehires Stone Cold. He helps out The Rock. But he was really he does a really good job of quickly flipping that switch from being babyface to being this complete heel dickbag in such a, like a short period of time. So, I mean, just, just that face he makes when he flips off Austin, he's like, ah, you know, I fucking gotcha, is, is really great stuff. So, yeah, really one of the, one of the better heel turns, 100%. certainly on, yeah, one of the better ones I've seen on this podcast, and may, maybe one of the better ones, I don't, maybe, I don't know if I should say in WWE history, but definitely probably top 20, because, I mean, the crowd, when, when he came in to count, the crowd, that, that was it, the crowd was like, okay, he's going to come and he's going to make the count, that's it. Basically, everybody bought into that finish. So definitely a really great, great piece of storytelling there. Yeah. And so from there, it's time for our second semifinal match of the night with the winner advancing to the finals of the tournament to face Mankind, The Undertaker versus The Rock. So this was another match that surprisingly didn't seem to have a lot of heat, but I think that may be due to the fact that we just saw Shane screw over Austin, and I'm assuming the crowd was likely expecting Stone Cold to move on to the finals. Not quite the case here, obviously. So about five minutes in, Rock hit Taker with a Samoan drop, and that was the cue, once again, for the big boss man to make his way to ringside. Yes, he actually showed up on time at this point. So far, he's 0 for 2 on his attempts to prevent Rock from advancing in the tournament, so maybe the third time will be a charm. Side note, Lee, did you catch the amusing moment shortly after this where Rock imitated the Undertaker's signature zombie sit-up routine and then flipped him off, followed by him getting censored for calling Paul Bearer a big fat piece of shit? Yeah, with very obvious hand gestures to what he was saying to Paul Bearer. Very exaggerated and pretty funny. Yes. Yeah, when he calls him a big fat piece of shit, he basically like motions like having a gigantic stomach. Being like, you big fat piece of shit. So, obviously, with that line, Vader would clearly be quite proud of The Rock. Being, <laughs> calling, calling someone a big fat piece of shit. And you know what? It was censored on the WWE Network, but for the fans of the Raw Attitude podcast, I will play the uncensored version for you right here. What? So, The Rock then slams Taker and attempts to hit him with the people's elbow but the boss man grabs his foot, preventing him from doing it, which is kind of curious given what happens later, but boss man then jumps up on the apron, but Taker punches him right back down. The Undertaker then grabs Rock by the throat, but before he can hit him with a choke slam, Kane enters the ring. Taker foolishly shoves Rock into Kane, so the big red machine hits the people's champ with a choke slam, but that means that the Undertaker has now been disqualified. Taker, upset with referee Earl Hebner's decision, then proceeds to punch him in the face, and he and Kane start brawling with each other through the crowd. However, the important takeaway here is that The Rock has now advanced to the final match of the tournament, where he will face Mankind. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on Rock versus Undertaker? The first thing, I guess, is like this made The Undertaker look like the smartest man alive, because he's the only person so far on the show to realize boss man helping you doesn't tend to end so well. (laughs) <laughs> and um, just the commentary from this is just forever burned in my memory. As Bossman walks back down the aisle, Jerry Lawler's, he's back. And, uh, yeah. and The Rock um, being hit by Paul Bearer with the shoe and JR saying, if the heel don't get you, the smell will. Just forever. Right, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lines forever burned in my memory. But yeah, no, good match. Um, the Kane story made sense. And it was a way to, I, I feel, get one of the big hitters out of the tournament without going like i think if the boss man had kept getting rock through it may have started to become obvious before you know before the ending but this was a good way to get out of doing it that way right absolutely yeah again i, I i'm trying to think I'm, I'm trying to think of like basically a, a really solid 
pay-per-view match between The Rock and The Undertaker. I can't really think of too, too many. And this, uh, you know, again, this was this was pretty good, but not not a classic by any stretch of the imagination. I'm sure these guys do have pay-per-view matches against each other. I just, I'm like, I'm basically just trying to think off the top of my head right now when they've ever actually had like a really good one. But maybe the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast can go ahead and consult us on that one. But there's one, um, there's, I, there's, some... there's one decent one in '99. I think it's either King of the Ring or Fully Loaded, where the match starts with the Undertaker knocking the referee out, and then it just gets hot from there. So oh. there is one good one in, in your timeline coming up that I know of. Excellent. Well, there you go. I'll get around to that in probably about six months or so, I guess. (laughs) So we then go backstage where Michael Cole is with Mankind, and I'm going to play his promo for you here because Mick tells us that he's feeling pretty lucky tonight. Mankind, you have the WWF Championship. I don't know what it is, Michael Cole. I guess you could just say that Lady Like is smiling down on Mankind tonight, and I've just got one more hill to make that one more rock to climb if you smell what the sock is cooking. <laughs> and by the way, Michael Cole kind of ruins that promo because as soon as Mankind finishes speaking, Cole looks directly into the camera and gives a look like, are you kidding me? Michael Cole ruining everything since 1997. We then head back into the arena for our next match, and it is a triple threat match for the WWF Tag Team titles, Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus the Headbangers, versus Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown. So unlike the majority of triple threat tag matches I've seen, instead of two guys fighting in the ring, this match's stipulation is that there must be three men in the ring at all times, which is certainly an interesting wrinkle. For my money, though, it turned the match into a pretty sloppy affair where the wrestlers in the ring were essentially just taking turns hitting each other. There was basically no rhythm to this match whatsoever. It went for just over 10 minutes, but to me it kind of felt like more than 20. And to cap off this shit sandwich, the match just randomly ended when Billy Gunn hit Mosh with a pile driver and pinned him while Thrasher and Mark Henry were brawling in a corner. Incredibly anticlimactic, but your winners and still WWF Tag Team Champions of the World, are the New Age Outlaws. And after the match, for the very first time, Billy Gunn pulls down his tights and moons his opponent, which will certainly become a recurring theme for him down the line. And then, Road Dog grabs a mic and says that they lived up to their promise that they would retain the titles, but then he proceeds to spell Billy Gunn's nickname as, quote, B.A. Double Poisonous Serpents, which means that he just spelled the word... Bass. And somehow that seems oddly fitting, considering what a disaster this match was. So, Lee, did you share my thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think they realized after this that the triple threat tag match doesn't work with three men in the ring pretty quickly. It was it was not yeah. not fluid at all. The, the only real notable part about this match for me was um, you said earlier in the show about the big sign in the crowd with Road Dog's entire shtick printed across it and how much that popped the outlaws themselves during their entrance. Uh, yeah. their entrance. They genuinely got a kick out of that. But yeah, the match itself was nothing to write home about absolutely not this is the first and i think the only time i can remember them doing a triple threat with with three tag teams and with three people in the ring at all times and there's that's probably the reason why because this match was was such a disaster they're probably like you know what let's uh let's not go this route anymore we don't need to do that so yeah the outlaws again i think you said the outlaws are one of your favorite tag teams of all time right yes definitely I would agree. I mean, they're the outlaws themselves. They're not known too much for being ring technicians, maybe Billy Gunn a little bit, but definitely an entertaining team. Here, though, when you have them go 10 minutes in this kind of clusterfuck type of match, 
just, it just doesn't really work too much for them. So they'll, they'll certainly have better matches than this one, thankfully. The biggest wrinkle, I think, is that logic states you can only really tag your own partner by doing it this way, and it just makes it very awkward for ring positioning. Right, right. Maybe the, the part of the logic for it was because the Outlaws had the famous uh, quote-unquote outlaw rule match, I think back in June, where basically it was this same setup where it was three tag teams, but there were only two men in the ring at the time. And obviously, I think it was Billy Gunn pinning Road Dog to keep the titles. So maybe they were like, oh no, we'll make sure that can't happen here, but we'll put three guys in the ring at all times. So, And you can only tag your own partner. So yeah, it uh, did not work here though. If anybody wants to cite a time when they've done another triple threat tag match with three guys in the ring, definitely feel free to let me know. But um, hopefully this will be the last we ever see of that. Knock on wood. Fingers crossed. And now it is time for the final contest in the WWF title tournament. It all comes down to this match for the vacant World Wrestling Federation Championship. Vince McMahon's hand-picked protege, Mankind, versus the man who has been defying Vince for the past few weeks, The Rock. At this point, Foley is no longer wearing the full business suit, but rather just the dress shirt and bow tie with his standard brown tights. Probably the right call after they fell off his ass last time. (laughs) And speaking of Foley, when he makes his entrance, here is an exact quote from Jim Ross. His brains have been scrambled by so many chair shots, you gotta wonder if he's even aware of what's going on. And if they haven't played that quote in the courtroom yet during the ongoing concussion lawsuit against the WWE, I feel like they probably should. Just they can be like, see? Yeah, see? They knew way back in 1998. They knew. Interestingly, when The Rock makes his entrance, we get a quick cut backstage where we see that Vince and Shane have somehow made their way back to the arena. So Vince tells the big boss man that he can head home tonight because he and Shane have business to tend to during the main event. Shane then tells Bossman that if he sees Stone Cold driving around the interstate on his way out, he should be sure to flip him off on behalf of Shane. And speaking of which, just a few minutes into the Rock-Mankind match, who comes walking down the aisle but none other than Vince and Shane? Rock starts walking toward them, but Mankind ambushes him from behind before he can get to them. Both men then proceed to brawl through the crowd, including Rock smacking Foley in the head with a trash can, which was pretty amusing. When they made their way back to ringside, Mankind picked up a chair and smacked Rock in the back with it right in front of referee Earl Hebner, but he did not disqualify Foley. Presumably, this match can only be won by pinfall or submission, because realistically, winning the WWF title via DQ probably wouldn't be very satisfying. Shortly after that, Mankind picked up the steel steps and walked toward Rock, but Rock grabbed the chair and smacked the stairs back into his face, knocking Foley to the ground. From there, The Rock then smashed the stairs with the chair while they were lying on top of Mankind, which was a pretty great-looking, brutal spot. And then, of course, because it's Mick Foley, Rock smashes him in the head with an unprotected chair shot. Good lord. And JR then doubles down by saying that Mankind's brain cells have to be even further depleted after that one. Oi. Not to be outdone, Mankind then manages to position Rock on top of the announce table, where he then hits a leg drop on Rock. But they both just kind of slide off the side of it without the table breaking. It looked a bit awkward, but JR went into full-on, good god almighty mode, to try and sell it anyway. And shortly after that, with Rock standing near the Spanish announce table, Mankind climbed to the second rope and attempted a flying elbow drop. But Rock moved out of the way, causing Foley to crash and burn right through the announce table. That time, the table did break. Rock then rolled Mankind into the ring, picked him up for a scoop slam, and set him up for the people's elbow. 
Rock hit the ropes, nailed the elbow, and that got him only a two count. Shockingly, Mankind was able to kick out even after all of the carnage leading up to that moment. Rock then whipped Foley off the ropes, but Mankind managed to reverse the momentum and hit him with a double arm DDT. And then from there, Foley pulled out Mr. Socko. He put the mandible claw on Rock, and the People's Champion started to fade as the crowd tried to rally him by chanting Rocky. Hebner checked to see if Rock was still conscious by dropping his arm once, then twice, but on the third try, Rock lifted his arm to signal that he was still in the fight. And from there, he escaped the mandible claw and hit the Rock bottom. However, Rock was so exhausted that it took him a while to roll over and pin Foley, so when he finally draped his arm over him, he only got a two count. And then, well, let's pick it up from there. And you can also, you can also believe that each and every one of you are just as pathetic and gullible as mankind. Whoa! I'll be happy to elaborate a great deal more tomorrow night. However, one other thing, and that is, I would like to publicly state on behalf of the McMahon family that we are so proud here tonight for a number of reasons. One of them is because tonight, Stone Cold was utterly, totally, royally screwed in this very ring. And if there's one man, if there's one man who has any more contempt for Stone Cold other than myself, and all of you, it has to be the man who absolutely loathes and detests each and every one of you, and that is The Rock. The Rock! Fans don't want to believe it. I congratulate you, Rock, and Shane. Shane, Academy Award performance. Thank you. And I told the world, I told the world that Dad, I'm just like you after all, aren't I, Dad? <laughs> Mankind's very confused. Poor son of a gun. All right, Rock. Rock, it's all yours. 
Vince, just like last Sunday on Heat, when The Rock said he'd rather be the people's ass than to ever kiss yours. Well, tonight, it's time for each and every single piece of trailer park trash to kiss The Rock's if you smell what The Rock is cooking. Poor Mick Foley. I'm not sure I understand. The Rock is a great wrestler, but Dad, to lose this match, I either had to be pinned and submit, and The Rock didn't either. I'm not really sure I understand what the hell is going on around here. Well, Mick, you don't get it, right? Well, get this. Okay. Oh, from behind. Get this. And now look at The Rock stumbling away of mankind after the war. The Rock and the McMahon family, Shane and Vince, in collusion. And here comes, yeah, The Rock bottom. So what you heard there was The Rock raising his eyebrow to Vince, then putting Mankind into the sharpshooter, or, if you will, the Scorpion King Deathlock. <laughs> from there, from there, just like one year prior at Survivor Series 1997 when Vince screwed Bret Hart, Mr. McMahon called for the bell despite the fact that Mankind never submitted. That means your winner and the new WWF champion for the very first time in his career is The Rock. And as you could hear there in the post-match promos, The Rock was somehow conspiring with Vince and Shane all along, and Mankind was merely used as a puppet by the McMahons. And after Mankind asked Vince what was going on, The Rock ambushed him by hitting him in the back of the head with the WWF title, then put the boots to him and hit him with another rock bottom. However, with The Rock, Vince, and Shane celebrating in the ring, we then saw Stone Cold Steve Austin by the entranceway. Austin ran toward the ring and started brawling with Rock, which caused Vince and Shane to run, to run away backstage. And then, shortly after that, Austin hits Rock with a stunner, tosses him out of the ring, and then throws the WWF title on the floor next to him. And to make things even worse, in my opinion, Austin then hits Mankind with a stunner, which really just seems like a bit of a dick move since Foley is now supposed to be a sympathetic babyface. I mean, you just kick the guy when he's down? What's, what was the point there? I, I don't know. Anyway, Austin then exits the ring and punches The Rock a few more times before finally heading up the ramp and flipping some celebratory middle fingers to the crowd as we go off the air. Personally, I will never understand why they would turn The Rock heel, give him the title, and then immediately make him look like a complete bitch, but that's just my two cents. So, Lee, what did you think of Rock versus Mankind, The Rock's heel turn, and Stone Cold attacking Rock after the match? I loved this. I thought this was awesome all round um the rock and mankind basically played their greatest hits before they'd become known as that with their rivalry obviously takes off in the next six months but you got all the the big spots of of most of that rivalry here the crowd were really solidly behind it very invested in all the near falls uh, which again made watching it all the more enjoyable um an awesome knockoff of the previous year's controversy at the survivor series and for my money this is 
Vince Russo's finest hour. Uh, just the storytelling yeah. that led up to this this main event was just incredible. So something I will always enjoy watching. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll go through the conspiracy in just a moment, but I agree with what you said about this being a really solid match. The Rock, I mean, The Rock turning heel, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because he had basically just turned face only two months prior, basically right after SummerSlam. And the fans, obviously, it wasn't like he was having a, a face run where the fans were kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. The fans were really behind The Rock during this run. He was getting massively over. So to have them pull the rug out from under the fans and The Rock now be this, this corporate champion was really something unexpected, but by the same token, I think ends up working very, very well, where the fans were like, yeah, we're behind the rock, and then, oh, you you mean to tell us that he was doing this thing the whole time, you basically fucked us over, and now he's back to being a heel. So I, I think they do a, the right thing here, where if you were going to try to turn the rock heel in pretty much any other way, it probably wouldn't work, but the fact that you put him with Vince McMahon, who is pretty much the top heel in the company, it definitely goes a long way toward toward giving that, that heel character some legitimacy. Were you okay with Stone Cold attacking Rock after after he had won the title? I didn't really like it, to be honest. I thought that could have waited until Raw. And I agree with what you said about him taking out Mankind as well, because these two guys, Rock and Mankind, have just basically established themselves as main eventers now. And, you know, I met Mick Foley had definitely main evented pay-per-views previously, but I think this put them in, in the real upper echelon with your Austin, your Undertaker, Kane, Vince McMahon it kind of put them into that stratosphere. And to have Austin come out and basically wipe them both out immediately after that, I just thought it was a little bit too soon. Uh, yeah, totally agree. I, I didn't like that at all. I would have been okay if it was, you know, maybe Austin coming out and maybe instead of, you know, hitting The Rock with a stunner or hitting The Rock with, uh, yeah, hitting The Rock with a stunner, I should say, if he had, you know, maybe hit Shane with a stunner, I think that would have made a little bit of sense. And, you know, Vince and Rock run away, but Rock is still triumphant. Um, I don't understand the point of Austin hitting Mankind with a stunner because, I mean, when we saw in their match, obviously Mankind beat him earlier in the night, but they made it very clear during the broadcast that, you know, when the Stooges were beating up Austin, that Mankind had no part in it. He was just kind of, you know, along for the ride. Jim Ross actually says that on the commentary where he's like, I don't think Mankind even knows what's going on. So it wasn't like, you know, Mankind was conspiring with Vince to take out Austin. He was just kind of there. So it, it, it kind of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth when Austin hit Foley with that stunner because Foley is basically built up to be such a sympathetic figure after this where he's calling Vince McMahon dad in his post-match promo. He's like, what happened? I don't understand. Kind of looking like a really pathetic figure being made a fool of over the past few weeks. And then, yeah, Austin just takes him out with a stunner. So uh, uh, not a huge fan of that. Not a huge fan of Rock uh, being taken out with a stunner as well. But in general, I will say... This was this was a good main event, and the turn as well definitely did not did not see that coming. And actually, on that note, as I was going through each week of the Raw Attitude podcast, I was basically kind of meticulously charting this conspiracy from the beginning, as though I was you know like Claire Danes in Homeland or something. So, would would you like me to take you through the entire thing here, Lee, so we can break it down from the beginning? Yes, please. Perfect. So basically, I guess you could say it starts on Judgment Day, October eighteenth. So Vince fires Austin after Stone Cold refuses to award the title to other to either The Undertaker or Kane. And then eight days later, Shane McMahon on Raw rehires Austin to a five-year contract with a guaranteed title shot and cuts a promo telling Vince how he won't listen to him anymore. One week later on Raw, November 2nd, Vince demotes Shane to a referee, and he schedules Austin to face the big boss man in the first round of the tournament. 
Backstage, Vince presents Mankind with the hardcore title and tells them that he has lost a son, but now he feels like he may have gained one as well. And later that same night, Vince tells Rock he must defeat Shamrock for the Intercontinental title or Rock will lose his number one contendership for the WWF title and be removed from the tournament. And Rock actually ends up winning the match by DQ when Shamrock hits him with a chair, but Rock doesn't win the title, so he does indeed lose his contendership and he gets removed from the tournament. Later on, Vince McMahon has The Rock arrested for making death threats toward him, and we see Rock taken away in a police car, so I guess maybe he did go to jail to further the conspiracy? I I don't know. And then later still that same night, the boss man is alone with Shane in a steel cage, and he asks Vince if he should attack Shane, but Vince tells boss man not to do it. Hmm... Then on Heat on November 8th, Shane acts as an impartial ref during the Godfather-Mark Merrow match. On that same episode of Heat, Vince tells Rock he'll put him back in the tournament if he beats Mark Henry on Raw the next night, but he's fired if he loses. When Vince calls Rock the people's ass, Rock tells him he would much rather be the people's ass than to ever kiss Vince's, which he references in that that, uh, post-match promo there at the Survivor Series. And then the next night on Raw on November 9th, Shane acts as an impartial ref during the Road Dog D'Lo Mosh triple threat match, again establishing him as a referee. Vince McMahon gives Mankind a makeover, presumably to groom him to become WWF champion. Big Boss Man helps Mankind retain the hardcore title by smacking Ken Shamrock with his nightstick. The Rock is attacked backstage, but no one is around to see it, interestingly. Stone Cold cuts a promo saying things have been too easy for him lately, and he thinks Vince is up to something. Vince calls out The Rock, but instead, Shane shows up, and Vince then tells the boss man to beat up Shane, but Stone Cold runs to the ring before he can do it. The Rock defeats Mark Henry in that match, thanks to Shane McMahon, again, counting the pinfall, as we said, and Rock beats up Patterson and Briscoe. Vince slaps The Rock in the face and gets a rock bottom and a people's elbow for his trouble, and again, this is kind of where it it unravels a bit for me that Vince is willingly taking The Rock's moves, but sure. And then at Survivor Series, to recap, Mankind is given Dwayne Gill as an opponent in the first round of the tournament, making it seem like he's going to have an easy path. The boss man intentionally gets himself disqualified by beating Stone Cold with a nightstick, and then he continues beating him after the match to further weaken Austin. With Triple H still injured, Patterson and Briscoe announce boss man will replace him against The Rock, and Rock conveniently pins him in three seconds. During the Mankind-Al Snow match, we cut backstage where Vince McMahon reveals that he stole Mr. Socko from Mankind and put it on head, presumably at the time thinking maybe that was to motivate Foley, but now it may have just been, in retrospect, a mean trick. During the Rock-Shamrock match, Bossman seemingly tries to toss his nightstick to Shamrock, but Rock intercepts it, hits Shamrock with it, and wins the match to advance. Again, very well done there, because now we know that was intentional. Shane McMahon acts as an impartial referee during the Sable Jack 1 women's title match against, again, playing up his referee credentials there. And then, during the Austin-Mankind match, after the referee has been taken out, Shane McMahon counts one, two, but not three, and Briscoe then hits Austin with a chair, Mankind covers, and Shane counts the three, screwing over Austin. And then, of course, we have the Rock-Mankind main event match. So basically, right there, you have... Up until the end of the Survivor Series, about 20 to 25 incidents that they played up in advance to kind of, I guess you could say, give us hints or throw us off the trail in certain instances. So I will give them credit for all of this this crazy booking in advance. But in my opinion, 
The part of the conspiracy that fools Stone Cold and mankind is brilliant, but the part where Rock was in on it the entire time makes no fucking sense, considering the fact he was beating up Vince on Raw just, just a week before this show. I mean, we're basically supposed to believe that Vince McMahon, who was still hobbling around on an injured ankle at that point, willingly took a rock bottom and a people's elbow, which would seemingly fly in the face of wrestling logic where you never want to be on the receiving end of someone's finishers. So, really strange stuff. I will say the stuff involving rock that happens at Survivor Series is retroactively pretty genius because you can go back and realize that he quote-unquote pins Bossman in three seconds, and then he intercepts the nightstick when Bossman was allegedly tossing it to Shamrock. I think that was very clever. But again, in my opinion, the Rock's heel turn overall doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense given the events that transpired before it. I don't know. What do you think, Lee? Did you think the whole thing uh, made a great deal of sense? I think they just needed a couple of minor tweaks and it could have been amazing. I think they really should have emphasized that Vince was in on the hiring back of Stone Cold because he enjoys screwing him too much because otherwise Mm -hmm. it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that Shane's this amazing do-good good guy and then the next week he's the most evil man in the company short of Vince. It doesn't that, you know, it's just a, such a strange and, and sharp turn. And the other one, I think they really just should have emphasized that The Rock realized the writing was on the wall and if he can't beat him, join him. And then everything from yes. there makes sense. Yes, I was going to make the same point too. If they had gone that route where The Rock says, you know, in his promo, you know what, I realized I couldn't fight City Hall, so I joined up with City Hall. You know, that that would make a lot of sense. But basically, we're supposed to go back and think that, you know, that Vince McMahon, and Rock actually says this later on, we'll get to this in just a moment, but Rock basically says that, you know, Vince essentially took one for the team by taking the people's elbow and taking the Rock bottom on the previous episode of Raw, which, you know, I I guess, yeah, fine, you could conceivably say he'd be willing to do that, but just doesn't doesn't seem to make a lot of sense there. And again, Shane, like you said, hiring Stone Cold to a five-year contract, there's no explanation given to that. I think, again, maybe that would have made sense. Vince himself has said that he puts up with Austin. On Raw, he said that he puts up with Austin because Austin makes him richer. So if we could have even gotten you know an explanation like that, we're like, yeah, he's locked up Stone Cold for five years because he's going to make Vince a shitload of money and he'll put up with the other BS. But we never get any explanation whatsoever for for that. You know, yeah, otherwise, not not a ton of stuff that necessarily on the rocks end makes a lot of sense but yeah the stuff the stuff with shane mcmahon and the stuff with fooling mankind i thought was really really well done and again those those little moments where you can go back and retroactively watch them and be like oh i see yeah there was that 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 is pretty cool because i can't remember them ever doing another storyline quite like this maybe maybe you can help me think on this but i can't remember a time I guess typically when you see these angles, it's like, like the, for example, like an, an angle like where the rockers are breaking up or something like that. There are always hints along the way where it's like Sean and Marty aren't getting along. But with this one, it's basically like the rock is the corporate champion and you would have to go back and see all these examples, which were never really played up as examples. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was never anything saying like, oh, I think the rock is it. There, there were never any hints of it overtly stated by commentary or anything like that so i mean can you think of another another angle they did that was anything like remotely close to this i genuinely can't think of another time in wrestling period where something made such perfect sense at the end but didn't give you any sense of foreshadowing along the way i that's why i said this was just a master stroke on russo and vince mcmahon's part because when all the pieces are put together, you see the picture, but until then you have no idea the picture's being built. And for me, that's what makes this such a genuinely classic wrestling storyline. 
Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think, you know, even though a lot of it, like we said, doesn't necessarily make sense, a lot of it does make a great deal of sense. And it certainly is probably probably Vince Russo's finest work, I would say. I think he also will cite that himself, that it was his finest work. But yeah, a, a tip of the cap for the storytelling, because it's something, like I said, that I don't think I've ever seen since. And you'll probably, you're probably not going to get again, because... It's. I don't know if yeah. they have the patience for such a long term. Even it's, it's only about a month, but I don't think they even have the patience to try to go tell these stories week to week with such intricate detail. So, kind of unfortunate. But on this occasion, I, th- I thought it was it was really well done, despite uh, some little lapses that don't really make a ton of sense. But before wrapping up Survivor Series, here are some quick stats for you. So this pay-per-view achieved a whopping 478,000 buys, which will make it the WWF's third most purchased show of the year, behind only WrestleMania 14 and SummerSlam. And not only that, but as of 2018, this is still the most purchased Survivor Series of all time. Even 20 years later, this is still number one. And for some perspective, last year's Survivor Series 1997 pay-per-view only drew 250,000 buys, meaning they almost doubled the number of people who bought the show one year later. Incredibly impressive there. And so, Lee, overall, what were your thoughts on Survivor Series 1998? Yeah, this is still, for me, in my easily in my top five pay-per-views ever. Mm. So it's, <clears throat> you know, as I said to you way back when, when I first appeared on the show, when you get to this, please bring me on board because this is something I just, I genuinely love it. I'd, I'd be doubtful of as many people that love this show as much as I do in the world because this is just one that will always hold a special place in my heart. It's right in the peak of my second big period of fandom. I never stopped liking wrestling from childhood through here, but obviously the access to it as the popularity gained, in, especially in Australia, made it a lot easier for me to follow along, to watch shows, buy action figures, buy merchandise, whatnot but this is just this is the crowning moment in the attitude era for me this is my favorite part of possibly wrestling of all time um this is yeah it's definitely top five if not my favorite ever pay-per-view yeah awesome that's that's a great way of putting it i think you know if you're going back and looking at survivor series like you know with a like a dave Meltzer or a scott keith where you're looking at you know all the individual matches being short and, you know, you know, most of them not being that great. You look at that and you're probably like, oh, you know, Survivor Series 98 is a thumbs down. But overall, I had a lot of fun watching this show. I mean, it's again, it's not a classic, you know, it's not a classic paper from, from a wrestling perspective. But from the perspective of watching these storylines play out. And as I said, I haven't seen this show since 1998 when I first watched it. Being able to go back and see like, oh, I see, you know, they were doing this here. They were doing this here. Even retroactively, knowing all the shit that's going into it, it's still a fun watch because you can watch the show and say, oh, yeah, they did this, they did this. So I, I thought it was a really enjoyable watch, despite the fact that, you know, the, there are probably there actually were probably some solid matches in there that I would say. I mean, the Mankind Rock main event, I think, is really good. Mankind versus uh, Stone Cold, I thought, was really solid, too. And I think there was another match. I'm, I'm forgetting to single out, but there was another one of those matches that jumped out at me where, where it was... Um, where I was enjoying watching it. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head, but yeah, I, I definitely had fun watching it. I would say thumbs up. If you get a chance, I would definitely recommend you go back and watch it, even if you know going in what the conspiracy is all about. Still a very, a very fun watch. So I guess uh, I guess we can leave it there, unless you have any further notes you'd like to uh, to make. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, so... 
a, just a fine show. Definitely go and watch it and, you know, feel free to get in touch. I'll always chat about this show with anyone that wants to. There you go. It, what's, your, what's your Twitter handle again? At Rory's Nitro Pod. There you go. At Rory's Nitro Pod. If you want to talk to Lee about Survivor Series 98, he will gladly entertain you for, uh, for I'll, I'll say, hours on end. He'll be willing to talk to you about Survivor Series 98. I'll post my phone number when the show goes up. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I wonder what the I forget what the um, the international code for Australia is, but we'll we'll make sure to put that there too. <laughs> yeah, you figure that part out, and, and I'll answer. <laughs> there you go. And so, in his post match promo, Vince McMahon said he would have more of an explanation tomorrow night on Raw. So, what do you say, Lee? Shall we head on into Raw as well? Absolutely. Let's do it. Great, let's do it. So it is Monday, November 16th, 1998, and we are live from Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include four episodes of WCW Thunder in 1998 and 99, an episode of Raw in July of 2010 where the newly formed Nexus defeated John Cena in a six-on-one handicap match, and an episode of SmackDown Live from just a few weeks ago on November 28th, 2017. So basically, uh, not a ton of history in this building. A lot of scattered shows, basically. We open the show with a clip of only one moment from Survivor Series, Shane McMahon refusing to count three for Stone Cold and flipping him off. And then we kick into the opening credits, and Lee, this is a special night because they have now changed the credits. Up until now, they had been using the intro where Austin walks through what looks like an abandoned warehouse as explosions go off around him, but now they've changed it to a bunch of rapid-fire clips of wrestlers in action, still set to the classic Thorn in Your Eye song. So did you have a particular preference between the exploding warehouse and the rapid-fire clips? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the new version, simply because the exploding warehouse went through sort of, you know, it wasn't really something I saw very often at the time, obviously going back and watching it a lot now, but we're now going into the, the we sort of 98, 99 for free to air TV in Australia was the peak of wrestling actually being on TV. So this is right in that sweet spot for me. Excellent. Yeah. I would agree to you. I actually do like the, the sort of rapid fire clips where they kind of do that little screech in the middle where it's like, and then they go, you know, with the rest of the thorn in your eye. But uh, it's certainly the classic for me. It's the classic raw opening where you just have those rapid fire shots of all the wrestlers. So yep. Thumbs up. So we then kick into the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the entertaining signs I saw included Shane, two words, asshole junior, the people's stud, ask your mama, I'd rather be in Austin, will wrestle for sex, Vince, you're a silly bitch, I would have said schlong, not sure what that's about, hi mom, Ronald is drunk, McMahon blows boss man, McMahon blows goats. The sock says, know your damn toes. I need toilet paper. And three signs which really reminded me that we were in Kentucky tonight. We want Hillbilly Jim. Eat more possum. And another which simply said, inbred. So, Lee, were there any that you noticed that I happened to miss? Yeah, there was a ton of signs. Um, There was one that says, Mr. Hat Fears Socko, which is very timely reference for the time. (laughs) There's a Vince McMahon for, uh, sorry, no, a Val Venus for president sign oh. this time around. So they've moved on from Ventura already. Um, bird whistle in the house. Hmm, sure. S- Sable 69, which is a staple of the era. Of course. And um, a good one of bald knob 316. <laughs> wow, taking a shot at Austin there, calling him a bald knob, I guess. All right. <laughs> yeah. 
So we open the show with Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, the Big Boss Man, and the Stooges walking to the ring. Vince grabs a mic and says that that old saying is not true. You can fool all of the people all of the time. Furthermore, anyone who doesn't pucker up and kiss their boss's ass is a damn fool. And with that in mind, Vince then introduces us to his champion, the man who was never the people's champion, but is now the corporate champion, The Rock. And also, I have to give Vince credit here for the way he introduces him, The Rock, kind of like dragging that R out, pretty, pretty quality stuff. And sure enough, Rock does indeed walk to the ring, holding his WWF title as chants of Rocky Sucks ring out from the crowd. And to further play up his new heel persona, Rock is wearing what I assume is an expensive leopard print shirt, dress pants, a gold chain around his neck, and a pair of sunglasses. Rock then gives a hug to Vince and Shane, and he takes the mic, so let's listen to what the new corporate champion has to say. You know, Mr. McMahon, all day long, the Rock's phone has been ringing off the hook, and the message has been clear. Why, Rock, why did you sell out? Good question. Well, actually, The Rock never sold out. The Rock just got ahead. Now, will some of you call The Rock a kiss-ass? Well, I'm sure you will, because quite frankly, you are all unintelligent pieces of trailer park trash. Do you smell it? I smell what The Rock is cooking. Now, you pieces of trash, you work your candy asses off day after day after day, nine to five for minimum wage. Well, The Rock did what The Rock had to do to get to the top of the world, and that is him standing smack dab in the middle of the corporate ring, your WWF World Champion. Platform, JR. Not a chance. Now, sure, you piece of trash, you work hard, you do what you have to do day after day. And quite frankly, you're all no different from a big piece the biggest piece of trailer park trash in Stone Cold, Steve Austin. Well, I'll tell you what, you and Austin, you can have your morality, you can have your honesty, you can have your and your tears. I'll tell you what, all that hard work, 50 cents couldn't buy you a cup of redneck coffee. Now, 
die, Rocky die. Rocky sucks. He finally said something the fans agree with. You see, The Rock never, ever forgot that. And he's gonna damn sure make sure that you never, ever forget it as well. You see what The Rock plans on doing? Is he plans on raising the people. Oh, I'm sorry. He plans on raising the corporate eyebrow. <laughs> he plans on playing you with the rock bottom. And the rock damn sure plans on laying the smackdown on your candy ass with the most electrifying move in sports entertainment today. The corporate elbow. you go up there and join them. Now, The Rock said that he would rather be the people's ass than to ever kiss his. But now, The Rock says he would much rather kiss Mr. McMahon's ass than to ever, and The Rock means ever kiss yours if you smell what the rock is cooking for the record that is the first time on this podcast that we've heard the rock refer to the elbow as the most electrifying move in sports entertainment today so mark that one in your history books so vince mcmahon then requests for video to be queued up on the titantron so they can recap the entire conspiracy leading up to the survivor series but instead we get footage backstage of Stone Cold Steve Austin arriving. There's some momentary panic among the corporation members, but eventually Vince says that he's glad Austin has arrived so he can see the footage of how the conspiracy unfolded. And sure enough, they do indeed then recap some of the major events, but of course one thing they don't do is provide an explanation for exactly why Shane McMahon signed Stone Cold to a five-year contract. That would seem to be a pretty crucial piece of the puzzle that doesn't get explained, but, you know, is what it is. And for the record, The Rock, as I mentioned before, he does actually say that Vince was, quote, man enough to take the rock bottom and people's elbow. So yes, that was part of the plan. However, once they finish that recap, Stone Cold Steve Austin emerges from backstage. Showing no fear whatsoever, he walks right into the ring where these seven corporation members are standing. Vince reminds Austin that a clause which was stipulated in his new contract is that he cannot lay a hand on Vince unless he's provoked, so that is some more new information that we're just learning right now. Austin then cues up some footage of his own on the Titantron from two weeks ago on Raw, where Shane promised that Stone Cold would get a title shot on the Raw after Survivor Series. Vince reminds Stone Cold that he overturned that decision, so let's pick it up from there. Don't get excited. No, no, don't get excited. I overruled that the same night. You had your shot at Survivor Series. Good. You overruled that. What I got here. Oh, what's that, JR? I got a document. What I got here 
is a legally binding contract which gives me a title shot at The Rock here tonight. of paper isn't worth the ink that it's dried on it. Give me a contract. It's notebook paper. According to the third district court judge, Horn of Lexington, Kentucky, this is... He took it to a judge? This is a legally binding contract, and if you don't believe Judge Horn, I got one more piece of footage to show you, so, so roll that bastard right now. Mr. McMahon, I have in my hand a document supplied to me by Stone Cold Steve Even though not written on formal pleading paper, it is a binding contract. I have reviewed the exhibits as well as the contract and find that this document was signed on Monday, November 2nd by Shane McMahon, who was lost with the corporation and had a right to bind the corporation. Furthermore, this document states that on the day after the Survivor Series, November 16th, Stone Cold Steve Austin will compete for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Now, therefore, it is my ruling, based upon the evidence before me, that tonight, Stone Cold Steve Austin will have his title shot live on Raw. We stand in recess. So what you heard there was Austin producing a legal document, which apparently Shane signed on Raw two weeks ago, which stipulates that he will indeed get his title shot tonight on Raw. And then, to further back up his case, he queued up footage on the Titantron of Judge Mills Lane confirming that it was indeed a valid document. Now, in case you're not familiar with Judge Mills Lane, he was an actual district court judge in Nevada, but he is best known for being the professional boxing referee who was refing the bout between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield in 1997 when Tyson bit a piece of Holyfield's ear off. Lane gained a bit of notoriety from that fight, which he parlayed into his own courtroom TV show called Judge Mills Lane, which was currently airing in syndication at the time of this episode of Raw. But perhaps more beneficial for Stone Cold, Lane also lent his voice to the Claymation animated series Celebrity Deathmatch, where Austin made occasional appearances. And now, the judge has affirmed Stone Cold's document for him, which means that, tonight on Raw, we will get a match for the WWF Championship, The Rock versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, on free television. Not fucking bad. So, Lee, what did you think of this opening segment? I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I thought maybe the heel promos were a little bit long-winded, and as we already talked about, the, the tying it all together didn't make 100% sense, but I, th I think it definitely put us into the next chapter of WWF main events storylines here. The Mills Lane stuff popped me a little bit. I thought it was really good. We didn't actually get the Mills Lane court show over here, but we did get Celebrity Deathmatch, and the first episode of Celebrity Deathmatch to air here, it may have been the first episode altogether, you'll have to fill me in on that one, but was Austin versus McMahon, and on TV over here, that was hyped up to be a big fucking deal, that yeah. Vince McMahon and Austin in cartoon form were going to have a match on TV, so yeah, nostalgia central for me again. Yeah, and uh, it would have actually been pretty funny, I think, if uh, Vince McMahon went over in that uh, celebrity death match setting, but uh, did didn't happen. Pretty sure Austin ended up beating him to death somehow or other. 
I don't. <laughs> I think so. I don't recall. But um, yeah, I thought this was a good a good way to start things off. I liked the Rock's corporate promo. It's actually funny to me how you know one just one night later when the Rock you know the previous night he was you know the baby face Rock. Uh, wearing his, you know, standard tights. And then he comes out just one night later wearing this, you know, elaborate, uh, e- expensive-looking getup where just just overnight he basically transforms himself into this uh, heelish dickbag who's now, you know, uh, wearing these expensive shirts and expensive shoes, which he, of course, will go on later to talk about in a lot of his promos. You know, the Rock's $500 shirt. It's, it's just kind of funny seeing how he transforms himself basically one night later. And, of course, the fact that we get... Now, thanks to Judge Mills Lane, The Rock versus Stone Cold on free television. I had actually forgotten that this happened the night after Survivor Series. So this was a nice welcome uh, surprise for me going back and watching this. I hadn't remembered that this had happened at all. So when I saw this opening segment, I was like, holy shit, the, the, we're getting The Rock versus Austin on free TV. Pr- pretty cool stuff. And uh, also just one little detail that I thought was pretty, uh, was pretty amusing. Was when the, when Stone Cold basically, you know, Vince says that he overturned it, and Stone Cold's like, "Oh, you overturned that," and he pulls out the document from his pocket, and you, for some reason, when he pulls out the document, you just hear the crowd loudly pop for that piece of paper, even though at this point we have no idea what it is. So, really, really funny stuff. And also, again, retroactively from two weeks ago on Raw, when Shane said that Austin gets the title shot the night after Survivor Series. Uh, when exactly did they just sign that backstage at some point? I guess we're we're led to believe that was the case, and it, and it somehow held up. It was never actually mentioned two weeks ago on Raw that they had signed a formal document, but a- apparently they did. So you know, a little bit of a uh, of, of retroactive rewriting, I suppose. But for the purposes of this segment, I thought it I thought it worked pretty well. So so we are now set. We have our main event for the evening: The Rock. One night after winning the title, has to put it on the line against Stone Cold. And I will say, if you recall, the last time that Stone Cold got a title shot on Raw when he wasn't the champion was uh, against Kane the night after King of the Ring 98, which Austin won. So I'm sure that was on a lot of people's minds on this night. So we'll see how it plays out. So after a commercial break, it is now time for our opening match of the evening, and it is a six-man tag team match WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws, and WWF European Champion X-Pac versus Oddity's members Kurgan, Golga, and Giant Silva, who are accompanied by Luna Vachon and the Insane Clown Posse. As usual, the WWE Network edits out the Oddity's entrance because ICP was rapping their theme song on the way to the ring, but they also edit out DX's entrance as well, so we don't get to hear Road Dog do his ladies and gentlemen routine. Spoiler alert, it's quite over. Following up on what we had discussed during Survivor Series, Jim Ross mentions that WWF officials were worried that X-Pac had suffered a neck injury last night, but 24 hours later, he is apparently completely cleared to wrestle because, come on, how serious could a potential neck injury be, right? Come on, shake it off. Although, (laughs) although with that being said, X-Pac never actually gets into the match, so I guess it's a moot point. And on the Oddities side, Giant Silva never actually gets into the match either, which is probably for the best. Fun fact. Yeah. Yeah, fun fact, actually. This is Giant Silva's last ever match on Raw, and normally I would cue up the Wrestler Heaven clip at this point, but I don't really think he deserves it. (laughs) I mean, come on, Giant Silva, no, no thanks. So anyway, the finish of the match came when Billy Gunn was brawling with Kurgan in one of the corners, which distracted the referee. Meanwhile, Golga was down on the canvas, and ICP member Shaggy Two Dope went to the top turnbuckle, 
and hit Golga with a top rope elbow drop. Yes, that's right. Shaggy hit his own friend for some reason, and Mr. Ass then covered Golga and scored the three count, giving the victory to DX. Amusingly, Jim Ross appears to take offense to the clowns involving themselves in a match because he then says, quote, ICP better stick to singing or rapping or performing and not in any athletic environment. So apparently, <laughs> apparently JR won't be calling any matches for Juggalo Championship Wrestling anytime soon. And after the match, ICP then backed up the ramp as the oddities went after them, with Violent J telling Kurgan that Shaggy accidentally hit Golga because he thought he was Billy Gunn. Can't argue with that logic. And after they left, Road Dog started walking up the ramp, where he was then attacked by the Headbangers. Billy Gunn and X-Pac charged after them, but Mosh and Thrasher scampered off backstage. Oh, Vince Russo, you even managed to overbook what happens after a match. So, Lee, what did you think of the opening six-man tag? I didn't even realize the oddities went this deep into 1998. Um, mm. Kurgan looks like an absolute fool in whatever the hell it is he's wearing. <laughs> he, he, he looks like he's just stapled the oddities, like, tie-dye over the top of his Truth Commission gear and just a weird <laughs> amalgamation of gimmicks. Um, and, yeah, the match itself was nothing amazing. The biggest turning uh, talking point, sorry, for me was how over the road dog shaky knee drop was. The crowd popped huge for that. Yeah, that's true. Fuck, I fucking love that shaky knee drop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we get the, obviously we get their pre-match intro cut out, but they pop huge for that too. Road Dog, again, you know, limited in the ring, but I mean, the guy knows what to do to get the crowd in the palm of his hand and contrast that with Billy Gunn, who is obviously the superior technical uh, wrestler of the two who never really succeeds in getting very much over, you know, when he eventually sets out on his own. So kind of funny how those things work out. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Not much, not much of a match. But then again, you know, it involves the oddities. Any match that involves Giant Silva is probably not going to be much of a classic. And as for the <laughs> yeah. as for the insane clown posse, I personally don't remember where this angle goes from here. With ICP seemingly turning on the oddities, so I guess we can uh, we can all find out together if, if it even does go anywhere. Knowing Vince Russo, it may very well not. So I guess we'll <laughs> see. So we then cut to footage from just a few minutes ago where Mankind arrived at the arena. He's loudly yelling something, but the only parts I could make out were him telling Vince that he wouldn't want to be in his shoes, and he then finishes by shouting, I'm coming home, before he heads into the arena's boiler room. Ah, just like old times. And after a commercial break, we go elsewhere backstage where Vince McMahon is with Shane, the boss man, and the Stooges. Vince says he wants Bossman to stay with him for protection, and he wants one of the remaining men to volunteer to go deal with Mankind. Of course, no one volunteers, so Vince appoints Patterson to go handle the issue. Vince then attempts to make Patterson feel better by saying, quote, Just remember, he's gullible. So we then head back to the arena, where WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock is heading to the ring. He grabs a microphone, which is usually a bad idea, and he proceeds to call out the Big Boss Man. Last night at Survivor Series, Boss Man tossed the nightstick to Rock, who then hit Shamrock in the face with it. And last week on Raw, Boss Man smacked Shamrock in the head with his nightstick during his hardcore title match against Mankind, so clearly Ken has a score to settle. And if that wasn't enough, Shamrock says he'll even put the Intercontinental title on the line tonight. Will Boss Man accept? I guess we'll have to stay tuned to find out. And once Shamrock heads backstage, we kick into our next match, Val Venus versus Mark Henry, who is accompanied by D'Lo Brown. 
Before the match, when Val does his pre-match sexual innuendo promo, he references the Kentucky Derby since they're in Lexington tonight. But Lee, did you notice how Val pronounced the word Kentucky? No, I can't say. I did. I've got the note about the Kentucky Derby and um, riding bareback, but I, I didn't notice the pronunciation. Yes, yeah, yeah, which is a, a great uh, a great innuendo there. But he, he pronounces it, when he comes out, he pronounces it as Kentucky. And I have to assume that was intentional, but I don't know for sure. But what I'm going to do, I'll play the clip here so the listeners at home can judge for themselves as to whether he was making a, a sort of vulgar reference here. So this is the Bluegrass State. Home of the Kentucky Derby. Intentional or not, you make the call. So anyway, Val versus Mark Henry was another pretty short match, going only about two and a half minutes. The finish came when Mark was stomping Val in the corner, but then... China appeared at the top of the ramp. Now keep in mind, this is the first time we've seen China in several weeks because she had taken a leave of absence to deal with the sexual harassment lawsuit that Mark Henry filed against her. So anyway, Henry sees China standing at the top of the ramp and waves to her, but that allows Val to roll him up and score the three count. However, once the match is over, Henry doesn't even seem all that bothered by losing to Val because he grabs a mic and proceeds to address the ninth wonder of the world. He says that their lawyers have been going back and forth, but the only thing he wants is a date with her. He then recites a terrible poem, with D'Lo amusingly reacting as though he was brought to tears, but China simply turns around and walks backstage. So, Lee, what did you think of Val Venus versus Mark Henry and the subsequent promo by the world's strongest man? Uh, the Val Venus Mark Henry match is again nothing much to write home about, but it does it, it does bring me back to another strong memory. It doesn't actually happen for probably another week or two yet, but I don't know if you'll you'll get this particular thing on Raw. See over here, we didn't get Raw. We got Superstars, which is you know at this time basically an hour recap of the week's events, which is pretty much Raw and maybe the odd thing from Heat. But um, the whole pregnancy angle with Terry is something that was featured quite heavily on Superstars over here. And I'll never forget, not for some of the good reasons I've mentioned the earlier stuff, is the blasé way Kevin Kelly voicing over Superstars just talks about the, the Terry fall that you'll see in a couple of weeks. And he just basically says it like, Terry's okay, but she lost the baby. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you can't just do that. Oh, my like, gosh. It, it's awful. So if anyone has a clip of that from Superstars, I, I suggest you send that in. But... um. Yeah, other than that, the poem after the match was pretty funny. D'Lo Brown's reactions were the best part about the whole thing, so I, I'm a big D'Lo fan. I did, I did enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, that I would agree with you. D'Lo's reactions are probably the highlight there. Mark Henry, these these poems, this becomes a recurring thing for him. I, I, I'm hesitant to shit on his poems because I think he actually does legitimately try with them because, uh, you know, spoiler alert for that, uh, Monday Night Raw, the night after Over the Edge 99, I'm pretty sure he reads a poem legitimately that night in a very serious connotation. So I think this is something he actually, you know, is trying to do. You know, maybe he's like, maybe he enjoys writing poetry in his real life and then trying to incorporate it into the character. But that always stuck with me when he read that poem about Owen, because I was like, oh, this is actually like something he does. I, I didn't realize that. But yeah, it's... I, I'm tempted to to back off on calling them shit because they're mostly shit. But uh, sorry, sorry, Mark Henry. I know you might you might try your best, but they're they're not very good. 
It does lead to an amazing angle that you'll get to review very soon, though, because oh. the Mark Henry China date is fantastic. It is, yeah. And actually, I think uh, one of the other moments afterwards where China brings in one of her friends with Mark Henry is is also a a classic moment. But uh, <laughs> we'll we'll get to that uh, at some point, unfortunately. So after a commercial break, we go backstage where Pat Patterson returns and says he was unable to find the boiler room, so he could not speak with mankind. We then get an amazing Vince McMahon line as he yells at Patterson, You couldn't find your ass! To which Gerald Briscoe, to which Gerald Briscoe then responds that he knows where it is, and of course Vince thinks that Briscoe is referring to Patterson's ass, but instead Briscoe clarifies that he meant to say that he knows where the boiler room is, so Vince now sends him off to search for mankind. I thought this was pretty funny stuff, Did you, would you agree? Yeah, I enjoyed these skits big time. Yeah, Vince McMahon yelling, you couldn't find your ass, is always entertaining, I think. Not, not that he ever says that again, but it's, it's pretty awesome. He should. Yeah, that, that should be a catchphrase, yeah. <laughs> so we then head back to the arena for our next match, Goldust and Steve Blackman versus Jeff Jarrett and the Blue Blazer, who are accompanied by Deborah McMichael. For those keeping score at home, this is the first time the Blue Blazer has had a match in the WWF since June of 1989. Jim Ross keeps insisting that it's Owen Hart in the costume, but we've clearly seen Owen and the Blazer together at the same time over the past few weeks, so perhaps he's mistaken. The match only lasted about two minutes, and the finish came when Jarrett and Goldust brawled on the arena floor, leaving Blackman and the Blazer alone in the ring. Blackman then proceeded to hit the Blazer with a bicycle kick and pin him, giving the win to Blackman and Goldust. And as soon as the match ended, Blackman motioned to the crowd that he was going to remove the Blazer's mask, presumably to reveal that it was Owen Hart underneath. But instead, a street clothes wearing Owen ran out from backstage. Owen, the Blazer, and Jarrett then proceeded to beat the crap out of Blackman before Goldust ran in to scare them away. So two things, Lee. Number one, what were your thoughts on this match? And number two, do you know who was actually in the Blue Blazer costume on this night? No, I was hoping you were going to tell me because whoever it is does an absolutely on-the-money Owen Hart impersonation, including the woo, which yep. sounded just like him. I was convinced it was Owen until Owen came out. And obviously I know that the history of Owen and the multiple Blazers, but yeah, I have no idea who was in it on this night. It was Bret Hart. No, sorry, no. Um, it was, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that was how they got him away from WCW. We put him under the blazer mask. Uh, no, it was actually, it was Steve Lombardi, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Brawler, a.k.a. the Blue Clin Blazler. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was Steve Lombardi on this particular night, the, the Brooklyn Brawler in the Blue Blazer costume. So well, Hats off to him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, he's he's... Kind of hard to – wasn't he just fired from the company pretty recently, like a year or so ago? Yeah, within the last year. I think he went on Taz's radio show without permission or something. Yeah, really, really strange that he would get fired for something like that. But, yeah, surprisingly, Steve Lombardi, the Brooklyn Brawler, the consummate jobber, I think he was Kim Chi when he was Kamala's manager. He's had a lot of roles over the years and in, in a backstage capacity as well, obviously. But, yeah, and managed to keep a job for quite a while. But – in terms of the match itself, probably not much to, to write home about. But again, the stuff the stuff with Owen and the Blue Blazer is, you know, retroactively a little bit... It's, it's sad, but at the same time, it's also kind of funny because it's Owen doing this ridiculous gimmick. And, and I, I, I'm, 
I'm enjoying going back and watching it, even though it obviously has that bittersweet tinge to it, just because it's Owen doing incredibly silly stuff. So in my opinion, maybe I'm one of the few people who can still actually go back and, and enjoy this. But uh, but that's just me. I mean, are, are you in the same boat? Is it is it tough for you to go back and watch the Blue Blazer segments, or is it um, is it okay to, to go back and watch it? No, I don't think so. I think I love Owen Hart, so I love everything he did. I've never actually watched the Over the Edge pay-per-view, and that's one that when it comes time for me to review that, I'm really not sure how I'll go. I find it slightly uncomfortable watching Chris Benoit, but that's about it. Everybody else that, you know, a lot of wrestlers have passed away, and I think you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a show from either of the two big eras of the WWF where one of your favorites wasn't deceased and, and wrestling on that show. So, you've, you know, I think you've got, kind of got to look past it to keep enjoying the retro wrestling. Yeah, I agree too. Um, I mean, again, I'll make the distinction that for me, just watching you know this angle with the blue blazer where it's kind of goofy stuff, that's that's fine for me to go back and watch. The one thing that stands that stands out, I should say, is like that uh, clip from Heat that I played earlier, where it's the blue blazer coming down from the ceiling. That's one where it's a little bit harder to watch, especially knowing what happens there. But just watching a blue blazer match in this sort of silly angle that's going on with Owen and Jeff Jarrett, uh, def- definitely enjoyable for for how wacky it is. So. I will say though, Agreed. I will say though, it is a little sad that you know this is what Owen has been reduced to nine months after basically being the biggest babyface in the company. Once you know he came back after Brett had you know obviously left the company in the wake of the screw job. I, I really thought that you know when the year turned, when it was January 1998, and Owen was over as fuck for being you know the sole survivor, the last heart. It's a little sad that this is what he's now reduced to, but you know is what it is, and I'm, I'm just enjoying it for what it is at the moment. And we then go backstage again, where The Rock has now joined Vince, Shane, The Boss Man, Patterson, and Slaughter. Briscoe returns and says that he did find the boiler room, but there were some strange noises coming from it, so he was too frightened to go inside. So Vince tells Commissioner Slaughter to go get Mankind instead, and then he pulls The Rock aside to a corner so they can discuss tonight's main event. And after a quick commercial break, we see that Slaughter has now returned already, and he's saying that Mankind is insane, so it would take more than just one person to calm him down. And so Vince tells Slaughter, Patterson, and Briscoe to team up and go handle Mankind as a group. Honestly, at this point, I don't know why he doesn't just send the boss man to do the job, but oh well. So we go back to the arena for our next match, The Godfather, accompanied by three of his hoes, versus Steven Regal. Now, I know what you're thinking. I sent Steven Regal's man's man character to Wrestler Heaven two weeks ago because he had wrestled his final match on Raw, but here he is tonight, scheduled to have a match against the Godfather, so what gives? Well, let's let's get into it. Oh, did you have something to say? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching the show. (laughs) You're like, wait a minute, but they're going to have a match. I think he goofed up here, surely. (laughs) Yeah, it was clearly, I clearly fucked up. Well, let's see what happens. So before the match can begin, the Godfather makes a special offer to Regal on behalf of the working man. They can either fight each other as scheduled, or Regal can take all three hoes and spend the night with them for free. And to their credit, the rather enthusiastic hoes then proceed to lift up their dresses and show off their thongs in an attempt to further entice Regal. As if you needed any further proof that the WWF was really starting to go there. So how does Regal respond to the Godfather's offer? Let's pick it up from there. Now normally, there's nothing I'd like more than to kick your head in. But, 
I may be from England, but the last time I checked, my name's Stephen Regal, not Elton John, so I'll take the broads. That's a smart move! Well, the man's man is a thinking man's man, apparently. At least in the King's view. Well, apparently, we're not going to have a match between Regal and the Godfather. What a night! Oh, what a night! Uh-oh, what's up now? You know what, man? I really didn't think you were going to take the hose. So, to quote what a good friend of mine, Archie Bunker, says, England ain't nothing but a place full of fags. Huh? Ugh. So, for starters, I'm actually pretty surprised they didn't edit out this segment on the network, or at the very least bleep the word fags, but yes, they left it all intact. Second, if you aren't familiar with Godfather's dated reference to Archie Bunker, he's the bigoted father figure on the 1970s sitcom All in the Family. Third, I had to go back and look this up because I was thinking, you know, well, maybe if if Archie Bunker is referencing the word fags when talking about England, it's a play on cigarettes because that's a British slang term. But no, I actually went ahead and found the clip from All in the Family that Godfather was referencing, and it's just a straightforward insult on the British all being gay. And finally, perhaps the most obvious point, why is the Godfather mocking Regal for being gay when he literally just agreed to bang three female prostitutes? I swear, when it comes to the Attitude Era, sometimes the mind reels. But anyway, the point here is that once Godfather insults Regal, they immediately get into a brawl until referees come down to the ring and separate them, and that is the last we will ever see of the real man's man gimmick on Raw. So, Lee, what did you think of this segment? This was unfortunate on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, um, no offense, uh, but this was this had to have been the Godfather's worst selection of hoes. <laughs> of all time. They, these were not pretty women. <laughs> well, it, it was and, Lexington, Kentucky, so you know. Yeah. Uh, the, there was a guy in the front row while the Godfather was talking and the hoes were flashing their, their rear ends, doing the, the Austin hands for like, oh, hell yeah. And I yeah. he looked, he, he must have been drunk <laughs> because, yeah, he, he wasn't doing it for me. Um, the Elton John reference, yeah. the um, And the Godfather as well comes across like a bit of a dickhead. Like as someone yeah. born in England, um, first of all, like the, the homophobic, uh, homophobic slurs haven't really held up so well, but no. I don't appreciate being told that my country makes me, in his words, I must be a fag. I think he probably upset a, a fairly large selection of the WWF's audience on this night. Yeah, I was wondering, like, was he going off book there, or was that an actual scripted line where they're like, okay, Godfather, listen, he's going to take the hose, and then you're going to call him the uh, the F-bomb there. It's like, what? but he just... He's he's taking the hose. It's not like he said... It's not like Regal was like, no, I don't want him. He, was, he took the hose. So... Yeah. You're, you're making fun of him for being gay when he's about to bang three of your prostitutes. Uh, sure, okay, why not? But that was actually the other thing I noticed, though, was when the hoes were lifting up their dresses, two of them did, and the one who didn't, like, she just kind of stuck her ass out, and the crowd booed her because the other two had shown their asses. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was kind of funny, where it's like, you know, she's basically she's basically trying to entice Regal, and the crowd's like, boo, she won't show her thong, fuck her. But I, I will say, aside from the, you know, the 
homophobia at the end there. I did think this was actually a pretty funny segment. See, just seeing Regal's reaction as the women are lifting up their dresses and him being like, you know, my name's Stephen Regal, not Elton John. I'll take the broads. You know, I, <laughs> I did find it amusing. I, I thought it was pretty funny. And again, they're obviously not having a match, but I think, you know, if they were to fill this with like a five-minute promo instead, it strikes me as that sort of thing where it's like instead of a promo, we'll have, you know, a little character advancement for Regal and we'll have uh, Godfather, you know, do make his offer that he's becoming so famous for. The one thing I thought was funny, though, that's retroactively a little unfortunate is Regal takes the hose and he's walking off with them. And you can loudly hear the fans chanting, Regal, Regal, like Regal's getting over thanks to him taking the hose and being the real man's man. And then he's basically gone from the company for another year. So it's like he, he kind of got himself over in this segment by taking the hose and being kind of entertaining. And, you know, he's basically done for at this point. So very, very unfortunate retroactively, because maybe who knows, maybe that could have been a face turn for Regal looking back on it. I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We'll never know. We'll never know. But we'll <laughs> see. We'll see him again, I think, around the year 2000, somewhere around there. So. See you then, Regal. In the meantime, uh, enjoy your hose if you still got to accept the offer. (laughs) So we then cut backstage where Kane has arrived, and he's walking near the production trucks. He then sees two production assistants, so he proceeds to throw one face-first into a truck, and then he chokeslams the other one onto the bed of another truck. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Kane thought that their television production skills were subpar. Yes. yeah, he's, he's obviously, you know, a, a television critic at this point in his career. <laughs> so after commercial break, it's now time for our WWF Intercontinental title match, champion Ken Shamrock versus the big boss man who has indeed accepted the challenge. Fun fact, this is the boss man's first ever match on Raw. The show had debuted in January of 93, and Bossman was let go from the WWF two months later in March, and he did not appear on Raw at all in that time frame the more you know. So because this is a heel versus heel match and the crowd hates both guys, they don't really seem to be all that interested in Shamrock and Bossman squaring off, even though the Intercontinental title is on the line. The match was a pretty unspectacular brawl, and eventually both men started fighting in one of the corners. Referee Mike Chioda got between them and tried to separate them, and then what I think was supposed to happen here was that both guys were supposed to punch Chioda at the same time because they were frustrated with him. But instead, Bossman appeared to make contact with him, but Shamrock missed by a mile. But regardless, Kyoto ends up rolling out of the ring and disqualifying both men, but that doesn't stop them from continuing to brawl with each other. Eventually, more referees and WWF officials have to come to the ring to separate Shamrock and the Bossman, but then Vince and Shane McMahon also emerge from backstage. Vince has a microphone and, well... Let's listen to what he has to say. What the hell are you doing? What the hell are you two doing? You're beating the hell out of each other. And for what? Not for me. God, come on. Shamrock. Shamrock, listen to me. What's he doing? Shamrock, listen, I said before, 
I said before you weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but you are damn sure the most dangerous, and I can use a man like you. Yeah. Keyword use, Shamrock. Hey, hey, hey. You and I are a lot alike, Kenny. Think about it. Think about it. We come from broken homes. Everything we've got in life, we had to claw, scratch, and bite our way to the top. Nobody ever gave us a damn thing. We're a lot alike, and you know it. You think these people care about you? They don't give a damn about you. That's true. But I care, because I understand you. Because I can give you the one thing that I never had growing up, and you never had. And you know what that is? That's family. That's family. Families stick together. Think about it. We've got a great corporate champion. A corporate enforcer in every corporation needs a dangerous man. So what about it, Ken? Just think about it. Why not come on home? Kenny looks corporate. I thought Jim Baker was a trip. Look! Look at this! A deal has been struck! So Shamrock has joined. Look at this! He's making... McMahon making the big boss man shake the hand of Ken Shamrock. To let bygones be bygones. So now, the WWF champion, The Rock, Shamrock, the Intercontinental Champion, and the big boss man, the corporate enforcer, are all with Mr. McMahon. So after Vince makes his offer, Shamrock does indeed shake his hand, and then the boss man's hand as well. So it appears that we have a brand new member of the corporation. So Lee, what did you think of this match and Shamrock joining up with Vince? Well, the match itself was stiff, but it was another classic raw attitude pod disqualification, I suppose. <laughs> so, you know, yep. uh, that made me laugh. But I, I kind of was waiting for this to happen because obviously Shamrock and the Boss Man become quite a formidable tag team for a brief run here. And the corporation is forming right before our eyes. So I kind of had an inkling, even though I've never seen this clip before of this happening. But I thought it was pretty well done. Um, Definitely enjoyed it. I, I think the corporation in sort of the next two to three weeks really takes complete form. But this was a, a really good segment to bring two of the, you know, the better heels in the company into alignment with Vince and The Rock and probably get them a little bit more over in the process. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because I, I obviously remembered Shamrock joining the corporation, but I didn't remember how he did it. So in my head, when Shamrock called out the boss man at the beginning of the show, I was thinking it was going to be some sort of swerve. But when they actually had the match with each other, I was like, oh, this is interesting. They actually, they're actually fighting. And then when Vince came out, I was like, oh, okay, now this, this makes sense. This is how Shamrock joins the corporation. I had totally forgot that that was how it went. And Vince's promo was actually interesting because he was kind of playing into their real-life backgrounds. It wasn't a sort of like wrestling promo because he was you know, saying like, you know, can you and I come from broken homes? It's like, what? Really? You're, 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 getting, this, you're getting kind of personal here, Vince. This is interesting. Um, yeah, I liked it. it. Yeah, and it basically devolves into that. Not not devolves, but it's basically that um, that sort of I don't want to say cliche, but it's that sort of thing where it's like you and I we're we're a lot alike, and it ends up working for uh, for Vince in this case because Shamrock signs on, and you know you got now we have Big Boss Man, the chief of security, 
you have Shamrock, who's presumably the enforcer, to make sure that The Rock is uh, is keeping the title. So, again, it's one of those interesting things where, you know, Shamrock and The Rock have been bitter enemies, but now they're kind of on the same side. But in wrestling, you just kind of, you know, forgive that sort of thing at this point, I suppose. So, so Shamrock, the newest member of the corporation. Very interesting stuff. And again, as you said, that stable is looking more and more formidable uh, as the as the uh, day is going on, as the as the show is going on, I should say, because we have that they're at this point, they're about what, eight or nine strong. So they're going to yeah. and they're yeah. going to continue to grow. Yes, I was actually hoping there'd be another member joining, but I think it's going to be on your next episode. I think, yeah, I think so. Spoiler alert for the next one. <laughs> May- maybe. I guess we'll see. So we then go backstage again, where Kane is walking around in the parking lot, and a group of planted fans walk up to him. One of the fans asks for his autograph, to which I must say, Why the fuck would any WWF fan think that the lunatic monster who attempted to set five people on fire last week would ever want to sign an autograph? And so Kane then proceeds to choke the fan up against a wall, which results in a cop car pulling up nearby. And how does Kane respond to that? Well... He simply just walks away, and somehow I never realized that was an option when dealing with the police. So this is this is the last we see of Kane tonight. But Lee, you had mentioned this earlier. Did you have something to to further expound upon about Kane's adventures tonight? Yeah, he's just basically directionless, isn't he? He's just walking around the arena. He's not in the arena affecting anything. He just looks like a sad, lost puppy. Yeah, yep. He is now that Paul Bearer and the Undertaker have abandoned him. He just has clearly no one to turn to so yeah but literally that's the last we see of him the cops pull up kane literally the last we see of kane is him just walking away so did the cops shoot him did they arrest him did he just beat the shit out of the cops like it's kind of like a choose your own adventure maybe we'll find out next week i i lean toward kane beating the shit out of the cops but i'm not sure i'm not sure if that's actually what does happen so we go back to the arena where it's time for our next match Brood members Gangrel and Edge, who are accompanied by WWF light heavyweight champion Christian, versus the new Legion of Doom, Animal and Draws. I should note that even though Animal and Draws have left Hawk behind, they apparently don't mind entering to a theme song that features him saying, What a rush at the beginning of it. And speaking of Hawk, only about a minute into the match, we see a face paintless Hawk emerge from backstage where he then proceeds to start climbing the Titan Tron. Animal and Draws notice this, and both of them then proceed to leave the ring and start walking up the ramp, resulting in a countout victory for the Brood. And in short order, Hawk has already climbed the top of the Titan Tron, and he better be careful, because it certainly seems like he's playing a deadly game! <laughs> So we take a quick commercial break, and then when we return, we see that Animal draws Paul Ellering and several WWF officials are now standing at the top of the ramp. Animal has a microphone, and he's telling Hawk not to jump because, quote, This wrestling business ain't worth this. Hawk yells back that he wants to go out in a blaze of glory, so yes, this is really happening, folks. They're teasing the idea that Hawk may kill himself on live television. Paul Ellering then grabs a mic and tries to comfort Hawk by saying that he has a lot to live for and his own children still refer to Hawk as uncle. However, while he's talking, Draws starts climbing the Titantron to go up and talk some sense into Hawk, which he clearly does not want. And so, let's pick it up from there. Come down here! I promise you are! An animal! We'll take it! We'll take it! One line at a time! 
stink at one hour at a time. You stink out for what? Don't you even come up. Don't you come up. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful up there. Mike. So what? It hasn't been our best year. So what? There's always next year. Don't worry about it. Keep him away. Take it easy. This is not good. Take it easy up there. Get it on. Hey, get the hell away from me. You're the last person I want up here. Get away. Hold on, come on now, be careful up there. Stay hey, let Drives help you, hold on. Ball. Mike, Mike, I'm be careful, do don't move. Don't no, move, you've been my brother for so long. Don't, don't move. Don't touch it, girl. Don't touch me. Don't move. Get a shirt. No. Oh, hey. what? God yeah. money. Good God. Oh, my God. Oh. Good job. He fell. He fell. So Draws manages to climb to the top of the Titantron, and, even though Hawk says not to touch him, Draws does indeed put a hand on Hawk's shirt. And from there, it certainly appears that Draws pushes him backwards right off the Titantron, and we can actually see the shadow of Hawk's body through the Tron, followed by a loud smack on the steel grating. And after another commercial break, the WWF classily plays up the fact that Hawk may have just died by showing several replays of Draws pushing him. In case you missed what happened before the commercial, let's take you back to moments ago where someone may have been killed live on camera. And we then go backstage (laughs) where an ambulance is driving away as Paul Ellering and the Disciples of Apocalypse are looking on. Hawk is apparently being taken to a hospital, but for some reason, Draws is not being taken to jail because it certainly seems like he just tried to murder Hawk. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on this infamous segment? This is the exact opposite of what I said about the um, the boss man throwing the nightstick to the rock, where I said it was executed perfectly. <laughs> this this was truly awful. I mean, uh, what they're going for here, I assume, is the accidentally on purpose pushed him, but leave it ambiguous so it can be revealed at a later date but he just gets up and shoves him off the titan tron and for all intents and purposes he's just murdered him live on tv (laughs) and they don't sell it that way like they kind of speculate that kind of looked like he might have pushed him well it it didn't he definitely pushed him he's just killed a man on tv yep There, there wasn't a lot of ambiguity there yeah although really can it be murder if the person you shoved was going to kill himself anyway? I mean, you know, yes, it can. Yes, it can be. But <laughs> it's an interesting moral gray area. I, I know, though, that this is this is definitely, in terms of attitude era craziness, I think this is one of the moments that's typically cited as one of the worst because it's, you know, it, it's the Legion of Doom doing a suicide angle, essentially, where, you know, Hawk... This guy, or or even better, the Vince Russo staple of of Animal referring to him as Mike and not by his, his character name, obviously, um, where Hawk, basically, this guy we've seen for the past 15 years, is now reduced to a suicidal sad sack because Animal and Draws ditched him. It's, you know, not a great moment. You know, retroactively, I will say I had fun going back and watching it, knowing that this was coming up and knowing that this was, you know, one of those all-time classic bad moments on raw but i mean would you say in terms of uh like crazy moments on raw would you say this is you know near the bottom for the for the company it's pretty close i mean it's got to be i would think between this and the terry runnels storyline that's still unfolding (laughs) one of the most one of the most tasteless moments in in wrestling that i can think of 
Yeah. Also, a certain moment maybe with uh, Mae Young down the line. That's also that's pretty that's pretty low on the totem pole as well. But uh, yeah, there there are a lot of uh, moments where they swing for the fences and don't exactly hit the mark. But that's that's the attitude error for you, folks. You know, they're they're not all gonna be winners. Let's just say that sometimes they they push for crazy and they uh, they might go a little bit too far. And so, how do you follow up the on-camera death of a wrestling legend? Wow! With Sable, of course. And presumably she had to step over a pool of blood and a chalk outline on her way through the curtain. But okay, just for the record, we obviously know that Hawk falling was a complete work because if someone really did fall to their death during a wrestling event, there's no way the show would ever continue, right? No way, obviously. So, (laughs) we know it's fake. That would never happen. I'll also note that even though the fans just witnessed such a traumatic moment, it doesn't seem to bother them that much because they pop huge for Sable just minutes later. So let that be a lesson to the funeral directors of the world. Boobs can instantly make someone forget about death. And Jerry Lawler appears to back up that point when he says, quote, One can't grieve forever, JR. The show must go on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, King, you have no idea how prophetic those words will become just six months from now. So Michael Cole proceeds to interview Sable in the ring, and she dedicates her women's championship victory to the fans, but then the man who made the three count for her last night, Shane McMahon, emerges from backstage since we haven't seen enough of the McMahon family tonight. Shane says that the fans didn't make Sable. Vince McMahon made Sable. She retorts that she got to where she is today by working hard, but Shane makes the air quotes with his fingers and says, You worked real hard for it, didn't you, Sable? But I guess that's just what women like you always do. And at this point, I'm reminded of the angle from earlier this summer where Vince was responsible for rehiring Sable after she lost her match to Mark Merrow, but there was no real explanation or payoff, and they pretty much just dropped it. So perhaps that's what Shane's referring to here. Who knows? Sable then finishes by saying that Shane knows nothing about real women except for the ones he can buy, to which I say... Was Shane hanging around backstage with the Godfather? (laughs) Sable then says she isn't for sale, and that is how we wrap things up. So, Lee, what did you think of Sable and Shane going head-to-head? Just the line from Sable, nobody gave me anything, is just hilarious. (laughs) She literally handed everything and gave nothing back. So that just... I couldn't get over that line that they would actually put that in there, considering, like, she's you know been big part of pay-per-views had matches won the title and never taken a single bump so you know just the irony killed me in this one yeah so sable is basically part of the pirates of the caribbean you know take all you can give nothing back i think that was that was her motto for the for the industry oh but, yeah yeah uh, i think this is a reference to the the sable vince mcmahon storyline from the summer that never paid off but again i don't really remember how this pays out so this or plays out, I should say. So for all I know, this could even be a one-off and they don't even follow up on it. I guess we'll see. But uh, yeah, once again, Sable and the McMahons coming to a crossroads seemingly. So for the record, as Sable is heading back up the ramp, Jim Ross tells us that Hawk is breathing, quote, somewhat normally, which seems like a bit of an odd phrase. Is it normal or is it not normal? Pick a side, JR. But the (laughs) the important part here is that Hawk is still breathing, so we know that he's not dead. Unfortunately... We can't say the same for his career. We then go backstage where Commissioner Slaughter, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are wearing helmets and football pads. 
they enter the boiler room where mankind quickly ambushes them with the lid of a garbage can. He then further hits them with punches to the head and throws them into a wall, and, for some reason, this appears to incapacitate the Stooges even though they're wearing those aforementioned helmets. I mean, seriously, that makes zero sense. Why would they be selling those shots to the head when they're wearing helmets? Really bizarre. But anyway, Mankind proceeds to leave all three of them laying, and he heads off elsewhere. And after a commercial break, we go back inside the arena where Vince, Shane, the big boss man, and new corporation member Ken Shamrock are walking to the ring. Vince grabs a mic and says that he had hoped that last night was going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin's last shot at the WWF Championship, but it will have to be tonight instead. Vince says Austin better make tonight count because he's never going to get another title shot, and from there he introduces the corporate champion, The Rock. And shortly thereafter, Austin heads to the ring for tonight's main event title match, so it is indeed on The Rock versus Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title on free fucking television. Incredible. As Jim Ross points out, the crowd is completely electric for this match, as well they should be. This is the first time we've had a WWF title match on Raw since September 14th, when Austin was forced to defend the belt against Ken Shamrock. As is the custom with the Attitude Era, Rock and Austin brawl outside the ring for a while, and for the second night in a row... Stone Cold attempts to pile drive an opponent on the floor, which results in him being backdropped instead. I mean, seriously, I'm starting to lose count of how many times he busts out that spot. It's, it's pretty much during every big match at this point. You'd think he learned by now that it just ain't gonna work. So when Rock rolls Austin back in the ring, he hits him with a scoop slam, and then, yes, we get the debut of the corporate elbow. And amusingly, before Rock hits the move, he holds up his pinky and thumb to mock Austin's beer-drinking gesture. And another nice touch was that, instead of throwing his elbow pad into the crowd, Rock simply drops it on top of Austin, because obviously he doesn't want to reward the people with a souvenir. Good stuff. Strangely, though, instead of attempting to pin Stone Cold after that, Rock instead puts him into a chin lock, which is a bit of an odd choice. And shortly after he does that... Mankind runs out from backstage and attempts to go after Vince McMahon. Instead, however, the big boss man cuts him off and starts brawling with him, and then new corporation member Ken Shamrock helps him beat up Foley. Back in the ring, Stone Cold recovered and attempted a stunner, but Rock reversed it and went for a rock bottom. However, Austin elbowed his way out, and then, when Rock attempted a clothesline, Stone Cold ducked, and then he did indeed hit Rock with the stunner. Austin went for the cover and got the one, the two, but not the three because Ken Shamrock pulled referee Earl Hebner out of the ring before the three count could be made. Austin went outside the ring and took care of Shamrock, and then he told Hebner to roll back in the ring so he could make the count again. However, once Stone Cold returned to the ring, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer had now emerged from backstage, and Taker is holding a shovel. Taker swung it at Austin, and even though Stone Cold clearly blocked it with his forearm, Jim Ross played it up as though Taker leveled him in the head. Regardless, it was right in front of Hebner, so he had no choice but to call for a disqualification. The Undertaker then raised the shovel over his head as though he was going to cave in Austin's skull with it, but Paul Bearer got in his way and prevented him from doing it. I'm not sure why, since you would think Bearer would want Taker to get rid of Austin, but maybe they have other plans for him. 
Jim Ross then speculates as to whether The Undertaker has joined the corporation as The Rock heads up the ramp, still holding his WWF title. Taker and Bearer then leave as well, and Austin gets back to his feet a little while later as Jim Ross speculates that Stone Cold may have... a concussion! Imagine that. Austin then flips off The Undertaker, and that is how the episode concludes. Ah, but wait a minute. If you're watching this episode on the WWE Network we actually get three and a half minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude, which shows what happened once this episode of Raw went off the air. So Shane McMahon, the big boss man, and Ken Shamrock all enter the ring, and all three of them quickly end up taking stunners in succession from Austin. Funny enough, I think you could say that this is actually the first time that anyone ever saw Shane take a bump, since he wasn't physically involved in any matches up to this point. All three of them roll out of the ring, and Stone Cold continues his new tradition of grabbing a beer from ringside and chugging it. Austin actually grabs an extra beer and taps Earl Hebner on the shoulder, and when Earl turns around and sees that Stone Cold is giving him a beer, he literally throws his hands in the air with joy like a kid on Christmas morning. Meanwhile, some dick fan throws a Stone Cold baseball jersey into the ring because, uh, I guess he wanted to waste 50 bucks. So Austin and Earl proceed to drink beer together and pose on the turnbuckles for some reason. Hebner then heads backstage, sadly without taking a stunner, but Austin sticks around to flip some celebratory middle fingers to the fans. He then requests for a beer to be thrown to him, likely from timekeeper Mark Eaton, and he catches it perfectly. And FYI, Lee, this is the first time we've seen someone toss a beer to Stone Cold, so clearly this is a historic night. Oh, Austin definitely. Oh, yeah. So Austin chugs the beer at the top of the ramp and pours some over his head, and that is how we officially wrap things up. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on Stone Cold versus The Rock and the extra attitude segment which followed? I enjoyed it. I think my thoughts on this are probably very similar to The Rock and Mankind the night before in that it's like a, a prequel of things to come, but you start to see a lot of their, their greatest hits coming out before they've, you know, the rivalries truly heated up. So really enjoyed it. I didn't realize until late in the show that the um, Undertaker sh hitting Austin with a shovel was this soon. Like I, I thought that was still a few weeks away into December, but um, no, really good stuff all around. I enjoyed it. I think this is a rivalry that it's one of the best rivalries of all time and it's in its absolute infancy here. So it's good to go and it, sort of enjoy the early stages of it because obviously these guys have three classic WrestleMania matches and a lot more stuff in between. So, you know, this is peak rock for me. It's peak Austin and it's two of the biggest stars in the history of the business coming together for an epic rivalry. So what's not to enjoy? Absolutely. I think you can clearly see that this is the direction they want to go with rock versus Austin. You know, they give us a little bit of a taste the night after survivor series, but I think, I think they realize this is going to be, you know the, the future rivalry. I think they, I think they're wise enough to realize that you know Rock Austin is going to be that rivalry that really catapults them into that next level. So again, it makes a lot of sense when you see you know when they're looking at who the next big star is because just over the past two months, The Rock has gotten himself over huge, and I'm assuming they saw that and they were like, wow, you know, we could really have something here if we flip The Rock back to a heel because obviously Austin's not going heel anytime soon, and he's going to need a new foil. So, yeah, definitely, I think they, they made the right call here with this switch doing the Rock Austin finish. The extra attitude, nice to see, I guess. It, it's usually just a nice little curiosity. You get to see what happens once it goes off the air, and they have the segment where they, you know, send the fans home happy. But, yeah, this, I'm, I'm assuming this is the first bump Shane has taken in the ring because, you know, he hasn't done that up until this point. Um, he hasn't been physically involved. 
So that's a nice little curiosity there. And then, as I said, um, this is the first time I've seen anyone toss a beer to Stone Cold. So again, another little curiosity from the extra attitude there. But overall, I really liked the uh, the Rock Austin match here, given the time that they had. The crowd was super hot for it. They probably thought they were going to see Austin win the title back, just like they saw uh, a few months prior when he did it against Kane the night after King of the Ring. So yeah, gr- great stuff all around. A, a really fun main event, and uh, yeah, fun fun ending to the show. I'm sure you know the DQ finish, as as you mentioned before, another Raw Attitude podcast DQ finish. But um, at this point, the crowd's probably accustomed to that. But you can see, you know, they're still playing up the Undertaker-Austin rivalry. Jim Ross, I think, on the previous week's episode, or maybe a few weeks ago, was still playing up the fact that Austin cost Taker the title at uh, at Judgment Day because uh, he, you know, basically Kane was knocked out and Undertaker could have pinned Kane. But Austin instead, you know, hit Undertaker with the stunner. So they're doing a good job kind of playing that up long term where it's like Undertaker still hasn't forgiven Austin for screwing him out of the belt. So, yeah, pretty, pretty good stuff all around. And now we can obviously see that they're they're segueing to an Austin-Undertaker feud again. So, good times, good times. Anything further to add about the uh, main event? Uh, no, I think just go go out of your way to watch it. I think this is, this era is something where if you just casually start watching, any pick up anywhere in 1998 and watch through, I, I, I don't think you'll regret it. Yeah, agreed. And again, this is, you know, we know obviously that Rock and Austin have a ton of classic matches over the years. This is one that I had forgot had even happened. So if you're like me, if you're an Attitude Era fan who somehow forgot that this match took place, definitely go and check it out because, yeah, you, you will not regret it. It was a good time. So we've certainly covered a lot of ground on this episode, but we're not quite finished yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw easily defeated Nitro in the ratings, 5.03 to 4.06. This week, coming off the Survivor Series and putting a Rock Austin match on free TV, of course it was a slaughter once again, as Raw defeated Nitro on this night, 5.5 to 4.2. That 5.5 rating, by the way, is the highest Raw had ever done against a full episode of Nitro, And by that, I mean Raw had done higher ratings against one- and two-hour episodes of Nitro, which were cut short due to the NBA playoffs in May. But up to this point, this was the highest-ever rating for Raw against a full three-hour episode of Nitro. And as for that Rock Austin main event, how about a 7.3 rating for that match? I dare say they were able to steal some eyeballs away from the competition. But of course, for the sake of comparison, Lee, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro on this night. Canyon defeated Glacier. Sonny Ono defeated El Gringo, who was actually Kaz Hayashi in a mask. Thrilling stuff. Horace and Stevie Ray defeated Dean Malenko and Steve Mongo McMichael by disqualification. Eddie Guerrero defeated Rey Mysterio. Definitely go check that one out. Chavo Guerrero versus Scott Putsky ended in a no contest. Saturn defeated Conan by disqualification. Juventud Guerrera defeated Kidman to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Fantastic match, by the way. 
Bobby Duncan Jr. defeated Chris Jericho by countout, so Jericho kept his World Television Championship. And in your main event, Chris Benoit defeated Bret Hart by disqualification. So, Lee, does that sound like an episode of Nitro you would have wanted to watch? No, not especially. I think it sounds like a typical WCW in the era where the cruiserweights probably carried the show on their back. And listening to that recap, it sounds quite um, void of a lot of star power. Um, yeah. Bret Hart, seemingly the biggest name from WCW, and we all know his run wasn't stellar by any means. So, yeah, I don't know that they put their, their best foot forward on this one. You're saying Bobby Duncan Jr. doesn't get you excited? <laughs> so there was people on that recap who I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the matches, Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrero, I know the Guerrero-Kidman match is really good. I don't know about the Chris, the Chris Benoit-Bret Hart main event. I haven't actually gone back and watched that one. I don't even know how much time it was given. Certainly on paper, that sounds pretty good, but overall, seems it definitely sounds like a lot of filler. I mean, you know, Horace and Stevie Ray, Saturn, Conan, Canyon, Glacier, freaking Glacier is still around at this point. Yeah, not not all that great. So, yeah, I'm with you on the same boat. It seems pretty pretty devoid of, of star power on, on this particular night. And so, on that note, let's finish everything up here with the raw synopsis. So, Lee, what were your overall thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw? I thought it, it was good, but it probably, it, well, it definitely, it didn't hold a candle to the night before's action. I think it was yep. a definite step down from Survivor Series, and knowing this is probably one that there's a lot of roars from this time period sort of over the next several weeks and and months that i have big memories of just like i did the survivor series but this isn't one of them i think the show you're going to recap next week and then the 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 ones following uh, are a lot more interesting so i think this is just a, a slight blip on a pretty decent road to come yeah there's definitely a couple interesting moments in this new Austin Undertaker rivalry coming up that I'm looking forward to. Uh, One in particular, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, is a pretty classic moment and somewhat controversial. I suppose we'll get to that in probably uh, one one or two weeks, maybe. I think maybe two weeks from now. But um, yeah, overall, I... I thought this was a pretty entertaining episode of Raw. Not not great, but good. We got the introduction of the corporate Rock character, basically. Obviously, Rock versus Austin on free television was great. The ma- the other matches were not very good, but we had enough of that sort of chaotic Raw nature that's going on lately, where you know some of the segments were enough to uh, to be entertaining. Uh, for example, the the Godfather Regal segment was not a match, but it was pretty entertaining, despite the homophobia. And of course, <laughs> Hawk climbing the fucking Titantron. I, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't entertained. But of course, I, I'm retroactively entertained because I know this is a classic, terrible, terrible moment for you know a, a longtime tag team that's you know legends in the fucking business. So you know, even stuff like that, I can enjoy on a retroactive level, where it's like this is this is a pretty big disaster. And, you know, it, basically from that perspective of, you know, what were they thinking? I can be entertained by that because at the time I was certainly, I remember watching that back in 1998 and just cringing the entire time to be like, Oh my God, they're really, they're really doing this really, you know? So, but yeah, overall I would say I'd recommend watching this episode of raw. Would you, would you give it a recommendation? Yeah, I'd definitely watch it. I think it, it's just, it, it, I sounded probably a little bit more down on it than I meant to be. The, the main event's obviously excellent, and some of the storyline advancement is really good. It just feels as though this was, a, a in some areas, a necessary step to get to the stuff that I'm really fondly remembering. So, But yeah, no, it's this era. I think you can't really go wrong. You'll always find some 
some not so good stuff, and so, certainly some of the matches we talked about were not anything to write home about. But there's always so much going on that you can't help but stumble across something you're going to enjoy. And for that reason, I, I'd watch any Raw during probably anywhere from late 97 through to 2002, and I think you'll definitely be entertained by something. There you go, yeah. Up to 2002 when uh, when Katie Vick and HLA were running wild. <laughs> Maybe not quite that deep into 2002. Okay. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. So yeah, well, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I'll be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. So before we wrap up, Lee, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast where they can find you outside of this show? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, come and check me out on Twitter, and I'm always up for a chat, wrestling or, or otherwise, um, at Raw Attitude. Uh, sorry, um, Raw is Nitro. I'm gonna steal you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not at your Twitter handle, at Raw is Nitro Pod. You can send me an email at Raw is Nitro Pod at hotmail.com, or check out the show preferably on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, the links are always up on Twitter, so you can find them there. And yeah, just have a listen and love to hear any feedback good bad or indifferent as always um and yeah thanks for having me on and thanks to everyone for listening no problem and thank you for the extra plug for my uh, twitter as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> go and check me out there <laughs> yeah uh well i have nothing further to add but so as is the custom of course whenever a guest host joins the raw attitude podcast i must ask is there a particular clip you would like me to play at the end of this episode if not i'll probably play my own clip like oh i don't know Vince Russo patting himself on the back for swerving everyone at Survivor Series 98. Something like that. Oh, I've never heard that, and I'd like to hear that, so I'll probably go with your suggestion. Perfect, yeah. It's, it's just a clip of him, I think maybe from his, uh, from his show, basically talking about Survivor Series 98. So I will do that. I will put that clip in there, and uh, I hope you fans enjoy that. Once again, a huge thank you to Lee for joining the show, and uh, perhaps you can come on again a third time. I would love to. Fantastic. Well, enjoy that clip, and be sure to check out the Rise Nitro podcast, of course, and I will catch you all next time. Because when a lot of people ask me, you know, Vince, what do you think was the greatest storyline personally, you know, that you wrote uh, throughout your entire career? And without hesitation, I always say the 1998 Survivor Series when Rock became the champion and we swerved the entire world uh, when Rock joined forces with Mr. McMahon. Um, I remember this very, very, very vividly because at the time it was myself and it was Ed Ferrara writing the show. And, and as I've said a million times before, we took great pride in every single show that we ever penned, there were only Ed Ferrara and myself. So the rock turn was something we had mapped out months in advance. We knew where we were going with this. 
uh, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we subtly told the story, I'd say over like a, 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 an eight-week period on TV. It was the kind of thing like the movie The Usual Suspects where you see the finish and it's holy crap. What just happened? We 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 thought that was the last thing we we expected. But then you can go back in time and watch the eight weeks that led up to that, and you would say, "Oh my God, why didn't I see that?" There were so many little hints in the story leading up to that night that I'll be honest with you, I'm very proud as a writer, um, you know, to have written such an in depth and a detailed story. It may have been the most detailed story of all time. 